Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today and I'm joined as always by this wild turkey, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. How you doing there, turkey? Cock-a-doodle do. <laughs> There's a joke in there somewhere. If anybody could find it and murder it and bury it in a shallow grave, <laughs> it would be you, Joshua Hatton. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be burying in a shallow grave. I think I'd be putting it all, you know, on a pedestal for everyone to see. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's just, this is this is how we do it. Uh, so, so I have to say, oh, and this this is this is classic. This is classic, Jason. Mm-hmm. I received a Facebook message by longtime listener and, and longtime nation member, oh, Leo long Batesman. Time. Long time, not one time. Long time. I, I heard one time. By one time, one listen. time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he he has fallen behind in his listening, mm. but um, yeah, Leo Vatesman, a name we've mentioned before on the mm-hmm. podcast, and uh, he sent me a Facebook message with a trailer for the Jewish Indiana Jones. He sent me the same, <laughs> and so I I haven't watched it just yet, but but he said this this is to show that I'm catching up on the podcast. <laughs> And so it's it's always interesting to me when it's the movies that we talk about that really resonate uh, with listeners. And so I'm I'm gonna have to go in and check out the Jewish Indiana Jones. You did watch the trailer? Well, I started watching the video, and it's I didn't watch the trailer. I just started watching the very beginning of it, and and it was great. Like it's this you know, very Chabadnik guy, you know, beard and, and, and all that. But instead of wearing like a black hat, he's wearing, you know, an Indiana Jones fedora. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm going to watch it later, but I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to see it. I mean, hey, if anybody's going to find the Ark, shouldn't it be a Jew? I mean, it was the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. That's, that's our covenant, right? Okay, thanks for making this historical. Wait. Isn't Indiana Jones just a, a historical piece? It's an infomercial, yeah, <laughs> for sending your kids to University of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> so no, it's it's all it's all good stuff. One that I was meaning to bring up with you, mm-hmm. and I haven't I haven't done it yet. We did do it in a little chat we were having with as we always refer to him, the good Ian Allen mm. of Glen Murray Distillery. And mm. our last our last One Nation Under Whiskey focused on Glen Murray Distillery. But I'd, I dropped you a text of an evening to say I was revisiting the original Terminator. It, oh. it had appeared on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And I, and I thought to myself, okay, it's rated R, but is this, is this a 1980s R? And I think it's 1984. For the original Terminator. Sure. Checks out. <laughs> I'm almost certain. I, I double-checked that at the time as well. And um, and I thought, I wonder if this would be good for a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old mm-hmm. uh, who would probably get into it. Because I remember at the time, it absolutely was not. It, it did not fit uh, the, the era. It was it was pretty violent. And so I started re-watching it. And the first thing that is patently obvious and and I think I've made mention of this before on this podcast and so movies from that era our era Mm -hmm. of the 80s Mm -hmm. 
are so slow. And our kids of the 2000s and 2010s have no interest in how slow moving what we consider these classics yeah. uh, they have no interest no interest in them at all so so first things first the Terminator opens with an intern and I shouldn't say this for people who have intros as long as ours <laughs> hey we're kids of the 80s let us be um, <laughs> it, it opens up with the credits right oh that's and, right yeah right and so it's funny in our house my kids have got a, a little joke that any movie that opens up the credits when the credits actually finish they go that was a good movie i enjoyed that yeah okay. and then they pretend <laughs> like they're off to do something else right because <laughs> they've just sat through you know eight to ten minutes of opening credits mm. so that was the first thing and then the second thing is it yes it's violent you you literally see oh gosh am i confident making this claim you literally see no killing oh that's not true are you sure about that i i feel confident in saying that you cuz you'll see him pull out the gun like the first the first sarah connor killer kill. yeah spoiler alert wait you whoa, whoa you don't sarah connor you, s- you see the red bead yeah. On the woman's yeah. forehead. Yeah. And then it cuts back to the Terminator pulling the trigger on this, you know, crazy, you know, aggressive weapon. You And then, and then she, she's on the ground. You don't see the killing of her. Huh. What about when he's, yeah. what about when Arnold is naked Terminator at the beginning and he mm-hmm. runs into those punk rockers, like there's the guy with mm-hmm. the mohawk, like, mm-hmm. and he steals. I think he steals the mohawk guy's clothes. Like, didn't we see him kill the punk rockers? He he's only he chokes he chokes one of them. You see the guy struggling, held up in the air with the hands against his throat. Yeah, you don't see him die. You don't see him take his last breath. Right, you understand what's happening. And in your mind, you put two and two together when he's then walking away in the guy's clothes. And so do you miss that aesthetic in movie making? Or do you, if you're going to watch a violent scene and, it, and it's dealing with the killing of someone, do you want that more realistic kill image? Absolutely not. But what's interesting yeah. in my own mind is when I was but a boy, Robocop was my film du jour. Mm-hmm. That was the film that I returned to. And in now rewatching Terminator, Terminator, violence wise, doesn't even hold a candle to Robocop. Mm. And, and I've never really been somebody into violent movies, which, yes. I do question myself when I say that, knowing <laughs> just how violent Robocop is. And so, so yeah, I, I definitely don't miss the aesthetic, but I never realized how it, it really paled mm. in comparison to Robocop. And honestly, I think Robocop's a much more interesting movie than Terminator. I know, I know, I know, I know. Because I, I'm... I've never really... Yeah, I've never really held up the, the Terminator canon. I also think Terminator made a mistake of having sequels. Two was okay, three was really pretty bad, and then, I don't know, what are we up to now, eight sequels? Robocop 
I guess RoboCop did have sequels and they were terrible as well. Scratch that point. I have not made a good point. You've Carry on. Bit, yeah. Well, I was I was going to say two things. First off, I was never a fan of RoboCop. Oh! I, I was not a fan. I remember oh! I remember seeing the trailer and hearing the title RoboCop and thinking, that sounds dumb. And so I never saw it in the theater. And then I think maybe it came How on. wrong you were, young Joshua. How oh wrong God. you were. And I think maybe it came on HBO or something like that or Cinemax or one of those years ago. I could imagine you were on Skinemax for uh, other reasons. I was, you know, that's a little after 11 p.m. <laughs> uh, and, and I just found the movie to be quite terrible. And so I never, I never went back to it. But there's, there's, there are other movies that people have loved that I've never liked. RoboCop, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. just absolutely hate that movie. I don't think there's anything to like about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Thank Oh, God. I knew I loved you. Um, uh, <laughs> and the eye will always love you. Um, I also... Pitch. Perfect, Tim's Galax <laughs> Rudd. Pitch perfect. <laughs> I was also not a fan of uh, of Blade Runner. I just found it. And, and here's the <sighs> thing. I like slow burn movies. And that was, yeah. if anything, the most ultimate of slow burn movies. And I know you, me, and Ian Allen, again, the aforementioned Ian Allen from Glenn Murray, have had this conversation and I love Ridley Scott movies. I just thought that um, Blade Runner was a steaming pile of hot garbage. Yeah, that's a that's a harder one to agree with you on because I think you are what I would call perfectly flawed on that. Right, your opinion is so bad that if you went exactly <laughs> 180 degrees in the other direction, you would be absolutely perfectly correct. Huh. So. Yeah, you've really you've really taken a turd on that one. Um, huh. Yeah, yeah. What what was the one? What was the other? Did you mention another sci-fi in there? I w- I'll be honest. I was looking up release date for Robocop was nineteen eighty seven, and release year for Terminator was nineteen eighty four. So I want to get us to actual whiskey talk, but before yeah. we, yeah, all right, maybe not. Bef- before we close out the the movie segment of this podcast uh, brought to you by Warner Brothers. Just kidding. Um, Brought to you by us. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you that there is a little bit of hope for our nation's future because I showed my, my oldest daughter, Delma, the movie Alien. And yeah, never, I was never interested in Alien. But, but here's the thing, like Blade Runner, it's an incredibly slow movie. You have to have a lot of patience. And she stuck with it, and she loved it. And, and to this day, she even says she thinks that's her favorite one, like beyond hmm. Alien, Aliens, the second one, which most people consider to be you know the best in the franchise. But yeah, she just loved that. It was this slow, creepy story that was just downright frightening to her and she loved it so Hmm. that that does bode well that slower storytelling is a is a hard one to get Mm -hmm. the kids Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. so power to her well done yeah so 
Are you done talking about movies? I mean, I've been sipping Never. on this whiskey. Never, but in the interest of pressing ahead, <laughs> I, I too have been sipping quite happily. What's, so, what's in your glass? I poured something very special in honor of our guest today, who is, by the way, as, as anyone who pays attention to the to the title of the podcast or looks at our, our masthead, knows that it's David Jennings, a.k.a. Rare Bird 101, a.k.a. a guy who has written an amazing book on the history of wild turkey and the Rippies and the Russells. I would go so far as to say he has written a pien to wild turkey. What's that word that isn't currently in my lexicon? A pien. A pien. Is that, do you put that in the oven, bake it for <laughs> 40 minutes on 375? How do you deal with that pien? Just, just be careful. If you don't cook it properly, mm-hmm. four and 20 blackbirds will come out of it. So just. Just heed my warning. <laughs> yeah, jeez, how do you spell pie-en? P-E-A-E-N, maybe? So before I tell you what's in my glass, what the hell does that mean? For basically most people listening to this podcast, because I don't know what that word is. Uh, a pie-en. No is... one else ate a dictionary this morning like you did. When I read his book, I messaged him, and, and I called it a pie-en in my message to him. Um Payen is a song of praise or triumph. And so given his treatment of wild turkey, and and we get to this in the interview, he is an uber fan of the distillery and of the people, of the Russells. And his voice comes through loud and proud in this text. Mm -hmm. But I I think that's appropriate. And I, I found it personally warming hmm. to read somebody, to read this this love letter, this song of praise, um, and just hear how how well constructed it was. Hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely thought it was commendable. Absolutely. And I, I have no reason to, to lie to David. I have I have no reason to blow smoke up David's Wahoo, I think is the appropriate terminology. Checks out. And and it is it is interesting. We will cover this in the interview. He talks about getting feedback on an early draft mm. and being told by other, you know, whiskey writers, well-regarded whiskey writers, not to use personal voice. And and he thought because he's a, he's a thoughtful chap. He thought long and hard about it. And he decided he wanted to remain true to himself, to remain true to his passion, yeah. and to remain true to to his love of the wild turkey distillery. And and boy, oh boy, does it take courage to eschew the advice of, of ready hmm. published whiskey authors, especially on your first book. And he did. And I, I thought the book was better for it. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I... That's why I stick to a, a, a pie-in. Well, thank you for educating us on, on what that word means. And I agree with you. I think it's, I think there are a lot of books out there that can be a bit dry and something that, that helps engage the reader is buying into the author's passion, if you've mm-hmm. got a shared passion, mm-hmm. right? So, but here's the other part. Yeah, but ahead. here's the other part. 
you can go off the rails. Yeah. And one of the things that we always grappled with mm-hmm. in writing blog posts was you can be controversial for the sake of controversial and gain clicks from it. Mm-hmm. But you can also be sycophantic in a way that you know who's sending you the samples. And if you know, if you believe that you're biting the hand that feeds you might potentially lead to a loss of samples, you might err on the side of everything that I get from this distillery is fantastic. Yeah. And I want everybody to know just how fantastic this is. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to fall into that. And then another category is when you fall in love with a particular distillery, and I think anybody listening to this podcast has a favorite distillery, when you tell your friends about it, when you tell your family about it, when you tell your your children about it, because, you know, let's be honest, we do talk to our kids about whiskey and distilleries and distilling, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yep. It's very easy to become fawning in your praise and yeah. uncritical in your praise. And I think that's the concern when when I find myself saying David Jennings, super fan, wrote a book about the distillery he's in love with. It's easy to imagine that it's fawning in its praise of that distillery. Mm-hmm. And it most definitely is not. Yeah. It's historically thorough. The research is commendable. He hasn't just sat down of a night and thought, what are all the things I love about wild turkey? He's instead presented a carefully considered case for the history of it, Mm. for the people who have taken to running it, and the ways in which they've gone about running that distillery. Yeah. And I and I really mean it when I say that's commendable. To toe that line, incredibly difficult. And I really think David did it. Well, let's do this. Let us reveal to one another the whiskeys we have in glass. And then let's sit back, enjoy the whiskeys, listen back to the conversation. And uh, and then reconvene after that. Sound good? Sounds wonderful. So I was going to tell you what I have in my glass, but I, I want to know first what you have in your glass. Well, I'm going to say this. All right. All right. He's going to use words. My kids are experimenting with how they're baking cookies this afternoon. All right. And I am getting a burnt cookie note <laughs> from my glass that when I first poured it was not in there. Mm-hmm. And I do not believe is a component of this whiskey. Mm. So I'm sniffing around the edges right now <laughs> to escape the burnt cookie note wafting up from downstairs. <laughs> um, yeah, for, for me, this, this has a, a wonderful dill component, uh, but it also has a wonderful cherry component. And in reading... Uh, David's book, which is called American Spirit. I don't know if we ever use the name, the title of the book. We just keep referring it to, to referring to David Jennings' book on wild turkey. So <laughs> it's called American Spirit, just to get that out yeah, there. Yeah. As I was reading American Spirit, he has a section where he talks about the the flavor profiles mm-hmm. in some of the the wild turkey releases. 
And I was reading one about a Rai release, and he had talked a little bit about a cherry note hmm. going on. You don't often hear cherry referenced Not in, in rye. rye whiskey. Yeah. And, and I just happened to be sitting, drinking the, the Russell's Reserve uh, single barrel rye. Mm-hmm. Um, Aren't they six-year-old single barrels? They are, but it doesn't have an age statement on it, and it doesn't have a cask number on it. Hmm. All right. uh, it is 52% alcohol, though. And, um, and as I was sitting reading uh, David's, <laughs> David's book, American Spirit, I was getting this cherry component from this rye whiskey. And I thought, that's peculiar. There's, there's, no, there's no cherry notes in rye whiskey. And then I turn the page and I read him writing on another rye release and he mentions cherry. And that's mm. when I put two and two together and I thought, fantastic. There is this interesting cherry note in wild turkey rye. And I think there should be more rye whiskey coming from the wild turkey distillery. Agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, so my whiskey is is a bit different. Mine's an, an older bottling. Now my favorite bourbon in the world is Wild Turkey Cheesy Gold Foil. And if there are any listeners listening in that don't know what Wild Turkey Cheesy Gold Foil is, just do a Google search and, and you'll find out. It's an absolutely remarkable bottling released in the late 80s, early 90s. A 12-year-old bottled at 50.5, and it's just stunning. I, I think it would give many, many malt whiskeys a run for their money, and that's saying a lot given how, how much of a malt whiskey fan I am. But anyway, that's not what I'm drinking. What I am drinking... I still remember the day you wrote that in a text to me. Right. You said, I'll tell you what I compare this to. It's so good. Here's what I compare it to. And I, okay. And you said, some of the best Scotch whiskeys I've ever had. <laughs> Needle scratch. Yep, it's a big bold statement, uh, but it's, it's a very, very big, very bold. So massively complex and so just worlds of flavor. Because it was at release, or because it's been sitting in a bottle for forty years. We talk about the oxidation of mezcals and what glass can do. Is it that oxidation in the glass over forty years? Was it this good at, at release? Have so, people talked about it as this good at release? Well, the problem is when it was released was back when no one was drinking bourbon. And my guess is, and I could be wrong, I haven't done much digging on this, but actually David Jennings might know better than I. It, my guess is there may be whiskeys older than 12 years old in there, even though the age statement is 12 years old. But I've got two bottles of it that I bought a while back and both of them had very good fill levels. So I don't think that there's necessarily an oxidation thing and I don't taste any weird bottle effect. It's still quite fresh. It's still bright and rich and there's no just weird oxidizing to this whiskey at all. It's just, it's full on cotton candy and fruity and nutty and like all the flavors all at once. But yes. This is my problem. When we when we go back into old whiskies, uh-huh. like I had a a nineteen thirties Maryland rye, mm-hmm. right? It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic, right? But was it fantastic upon release? Was it fantastic because it had you know at that point eighty years 
of just growing into itself and without wood influence, right? And that's what I mean about sitting in the bottle where, you know, even if it's not oxidation, even if it's not, you know, you're not witnessing evaporation, you know, for me, there's still something happening at the molecular level where it's just marrying so mm. beautifully to itself. But there's no comparison. It's just... I know. Yeah, yeah that's you, phenomenal. Yeah. You, you can't go back in time, right? You can never go home, Joshua. But if I could turn back time, if so I could find a way, I mean... If you I, could find a way. What I am drinking is... Talk about the 1980s. <laughs> what... Wasn't that a 90s song? You know, it's right, it's right on the line. It's right on the line. Here's the thing, and we've mentioned this before in the podcast, everybody remembers it. It has to be the 90s, because that was the first song where auto-tune was used. No! Yes. No, no. 1989. Oh, that's, that's right. No, the first song with auto-tune released the first general like big popular share song with auto tune was if you believe in love after love which how could you how could you oh yeah shares 1998 hit believe was the first recording to use auto tune in a distinctive way so oh. they have 98 for believe but 89 for if I could turn back time. So there you go. Just swap them out, switch the letters. 69, 96, 98, 89, whatever day it was. Anyway, listen, I have to tell you the whiskey that I'm drinking. You seem to not allow me to do this. This is from a, uh, this is actually from a ceramic decanter uh, that was released in 1983. It's from a really ugly decanter called the Fighting Turkeys. It's and not it w- still sitting in the decanter, is it? Oh no, no, no! I put it. I put it in a bottle. Yeah, okay. yeah. I put oh, it in a bottle. Those, those decanters leach lead into the spirit. Not apparently the beam ones did, but the wild turkey ones did not. But who knows? Anyway, this <laughs> this was released in 1983, but distilled in 1971. So this was distilled mm-hmm. before both you and I were born. Bottled at 50.5 percent alcohol. And it's just great, rich, old, funky turkey. And so I pour that in honor of David Jennings and the conversation we're about to have regarding his book. So, so where did the idea for the book come from? Obviously... You know, you're known across the internet as the wild turkey guy. Um, <laughs> you know, you have quite the following, and and Joshua and I count ourselves among your following. One hundred percent. But where where did the move come from? You're a guy with an internet presence who knows wild turkey inside out and back to front. To I'm going to be a guy who writes this down and publishes a book. Well, uh, the idea came from my wife. She uh, all best ideas do. (laughs) They do. And she's like, you know, you're writing every night. You ought to just you ought to write a book. And um, and to me, that seemed that seemed like like, you know, going to the moon or something, you know. Um, And she was like, no, you know, I had somebody I work with that that did it. You can do it. You know, you're writing every night anyway. And I got to thinking about I'm like, you know, I am writing every (laughs) night anyway. So is it going to be that difficult to just, you know, inch along? 
So I was like, okay, mm. I'm just going to write a book. And I didn't know what I was doing. I've, I've never written a book before. So uh, I, I started with the introduction. I, I, I found out later that most authors write their introduction last because you're basically kind of going through huh. the book. you know. But to me, the introduction wasn't so much an introduction to the book, which is what you find in a typical introduction, as it was an introduction to uh, me and how I got into whiskey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's where I started. I started... And, and I kind of took that narrative into the book itself. So it's not a, a typical bourbon history book. It is very much a fan mm-hmm. book with a lot of history. Sure. Um, so Correct. It, it, it's, it's different. And, you know, early on, I, I sent it to some folks uh, for their opinions, and it was kind of mixed because I got some opinions that, well, this isn't like a typical whiskey book, you know, I don't really know if a publisher is going to be interested in <laughs> this is a fan book. And I got, I got a little bit discouraged, but I was like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I want to do this myself. And I think after it was done and it came out and people saw, you know, what I was trying to say, I think that people appreciate a yeah. fan's perspective. Um, you don't have to be a, a, a whiskey expert, you know, to tell how much uh, you love a specific brand or whiskey or, you know, whatever it might be, even if it's some other hobby, you know, just because, uh, you're not an expert doesn't mean that you don't have a story to tell. Um, and so that's what the book is. It's just kind of like my personal journey into wild Turkey. And in that process, Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research and I share a lot of history and I share a lot of tasting notes and, uh, comparisons to other brands. And it's, it's full of a Mm -hmm. lot of information. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was, you know, Joshua and I were, were fortunate to receive a, a couple of media PDFs of the book. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much for yeah, those. Yeah, oh, you're you. welcome. And in reading through it, you know, once I completed it, I, I sent you a series of notes, uh, uh, you know, from my takeaway of it. And one of the things that struck me was you didn't back down from being a fan of wild turkey. Mm. And I thoroughly appreciated that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And if you had just instead, <laughs> thank you, baby, <laughs> more medication. If, <laughs> if you had gone down the route of, I am impartial observer, I am taking on the role of journalist, mm. writing impartially about wild turkey, as a reader, I would have lost something there. And I love the fact that you were able to balance being a wild turkey super fan, maybe the wild turkey super fan, and somebody who was able to parlay that experience into the history, which is a, a relatively complicated history. It's not an overly transparent history. And you committed to the history and then went on into the product. And I really do think you did it the best possible way. And I'm really, and I said it to you over over message, I'm really glad you stuck to your guns. And so I'm curious, as a first-time author, what was it in you that had you stick to your guns and not listen to more seasoned veteran, hmm. you know, you know, authorship? Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you. That was very kind. Uh, that everything you said there, I appreciate that. Uh, it, it really boiled down to, uh, I had to be me. Like you know, I, I it's sure. easy to. Um, want to be something else um, mm-hmm. it's hard to 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 actually make that happen 
and come across as genuine because in essence you're acting, you know. Um, and so <laughs> I, I just, I, I just, I, I could, I, I write a certain way and it's a conversational type of writing. Um, y'all, y'all familiar with my blog? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that's just the way I write. And, and, and to try to write any other way um, is kind of, it, it takes away my creativity. Mm. It takes away uh, my passion and my happiness. So I just went forward with what, you know, with what I knew, which is just, you know, giving my opinion on things. And, and, and sometimes I insert that even in the history portions as you've read, you know, I'll, I'll insert my opinion you know, about yeah. a certain event, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and I try to phrase it that way too. Like, you know, well, in my opinion or, you know, from my perspective. Um, but that was another way too, to kind of subtly tell the reader that, you know, I'm not a historian and I'm not claiming that this book is, you know, this should be, you know, is like the, the source for wild turkeys permanent history. Mm-hmm. Um, although I did take a lot of time researching it, I just, I didn't just Google, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I spent time on the Kentucky uh, Secretary of State website a good bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on Ancestry.com a good bit, which then linked me to census reports. I, I was able to pull some tax records, insurance records. Um, it was a lot of research in this thing. Um, but uh, at the same time, I also wanted to keep the pace going. Like, you can get yes. stuck on a detail. Yes. And, and, and you can talk about, you know, one year of a person's life for like, you know, 10 pages and that may not be very fun for people. Or you can talk about how many bushels and barrels and production numbers. (laughs) And I threw a little bit about that in there, but if you start bogging it down with numbers, the average reader is going to be like, what? Well, I don't, you know, this is too much, you know? So I I had to keep that pace. to be too much of a super fan. (laughs) Right. You don't want to be, you don't want to get too nerdy. Like you want to have just enough nerd stuff in there to where it, they learn something new, like, ooh, that's cool. That's a cool little fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but if you bog it down with a bunch of statistics and, and meaningless numbers, then, or at least meaningless to the reader, you, you know, like, you know, like Joshua said, you've lost them. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, and another one of my, my comments to you was that this was, you know, one of the issues I've always had about learning about bourbon, now that I'm in America, is that the history's aren't always transparent yeah. and yeah. there has been a lot of marketing and there has been a lot of myth making and and I really like peeling all that away to learn about the history of a distillery and the thing mm-hmm. I said to you was and I don't think you're going to embark upon this project <laughs> but I would love to see you do one of these for every Kentucky distillery <laughs> I love how I- you just you know you'll just shone a light on a very simple, uh, uh, <laughs> you shone a light on a complicated history, but you presented it in a simple, accessible yes. way. And I greatly appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah I, I wish that there were other folks doing the same. I mean, I would love to read, you know, a fan's point of view on, you know, whatever, Four Roses or Beam or, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are books about Four Roses and Beam and, mm-hmm. and Makers and um, I mean, I have Al Young's book, and, and it's a nice book. It has a lot of uh, information in it and a lot of pictures. Um, it is definitely a very, um, you know, Al was an employee. Um, so it's, it was very, uh, you know, Four Roses, you know, corporate-esque in a way. Um, but it's still a nice book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also mention that, uh, you know, I hated, uh, when, when Al Young passed away, I hated that I was, I was never able to give him a copy of this book because... 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his he did a series of interviews uh, for the University of Kentucky, uh, the Nunn Center, uh, and he interviewed uh, Jimmy and Eddie, and he interviewed uh, Olivia Rippey and uh, uh, Thomas Rippey. Huh. And mm-hmm. those videos were crucial. Those interviews were crucial in, in my research. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of conversational information that came out mm-hmm. that you would never have found, you know, in a, in a, in a report or a uh, filing with the state or anything. I mean, and, and um, you know, I'm so glad he did those, and he did them well. I mean, there, he's a, he's, he did great at interviewing people, um, and I'm so glad he did those uh, because it, it, I don't know if this book would even be here without it. And uh, but when he passed away, it was it was heartbreaking for me because I was like, dang, because like really wanted to have that day where yeah. I got to you know hand him a copy and say sure. thank you for doing this, Al. You know, um, but a uh, shame. I'm glad. And, and anyone that that's you know listening, you know, you can go to YouTube and you can do a search for the Nun Center, um, and uh, there's lots of other interviews on there with like Jim Rutledge. Hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of great high quality, and they're, and they're in short. They're in short form, so like you can just okay. watch. It's not like one long interview with Jimmy Russell. It's like ten six-minute videos with Jimmy. So you hmm. can drill down to a specific topic. Um, hmm. And they're how really are you spelling none? It's N U N N. N U N. It's and it's in the in in the Nun Center, and it's in the um in the book as well, in the uh, in the uh, uh, references. It's it's listed there as well. So sure. that gives you the actual full URL for YouTube. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, nice. You're just a man of resources. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was trying to find everything I could. So, you know, thank, thank goodness for the the internet. You can you can find a lot now. Uh, but uh, yeah, it it's it it's it. I wish that other going back to what you said. I wish that other you know fans of other uh, brands would do the same thing. I mean, it, it's a there's a treasure trove out there. I mean, it's not just American whiskey. I yeah. mean, hmm. books could be written about numerous distilleries, both old and new, uh, yep. dead and alive, in, in, in Scotland, in Ireland. Um, it's uh, funny you it, mention, there's actually. There's a lot of them I'm, out there. I'm currently reading Andrew Jeffords' um, Pete Smoke and Spirit, oh, yeah. which is about Isla yeah. and Isla's distilleries. Mm-hmm. And, and he's done such a, a beautiful job there. And, you know, the book dates from 2004. But it's such a beautiful book about Isla. The history mm-hmm. of Isla, the people of Isla, mm-hmm. and then the distilleries are just the cherry on top at the end of each oh. chapter, uh, and so you're just kind of reading about Ardbeg. Like it's just so nice, clean. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really good, really well yeah, worth well your time. Well worth your time. Yeah, I love it yeah. when you have that. You know, you know, history books are fun. I mean, but they can be dry. Sure, and it's nice when you get. You know, some culture in there uh, w- with a perspective that's very uh, relatable, um, mm-hmm. and and that's that's something that I would be interested in. So I'm going to have to to check that out. Um, yeah, I highly course, recommend. Andrew Jefford. Mm-hmm. Okay, I will I will check that out. You guys are going to have to maybe think about one day <laughs> writing a history of uh, independent bottlers. How about that? That's a challenge for you. I have thought about it actually. I've yeah. I, I, mean, I wouldn't say I've started researching it, but I've in my mind I've I've mapped out how I would build that book. Well, it's and, and I know this is going to be not in the, the the podcast, but it's such an interesting, you know, facet because you know it's easy to have distilleries and drill down their mm-hmm. histories, but independent bottling, you're going to be 
all over the place, you know, and some of them are store based and some of them are individual based and some of them, I mean, it's, it's going to be, it would, it would be a very interesting read, I think. So there you go. (laughs) Cheers. Yeah. I think the, the biggest issue you run into it's, I mean, really is a Herculean task to try to do a history on all of the independent bottling that's been done since the very beginning. I mean, you've got the U.S. and Germany and Scotland and the Netherlands and independent bottlers from Japan and South Africa. Mm. And, you know, the list wow. goes on and on. It's, it could be kind of exhaustive. So, I mean, how many books do you end up doing? Do you limit it? It's, you know, there are a lot of things yeah. to consider. Yeah, you would you would definitely have to uh, you know pick your battles on that one. You, there's no way it, in a comprehensive history <laughs> yeah. as as cool as that can be for a a, 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 a you know a, a a professor or something. The average reader is going to just get totally get lost. So yeah, you, you'll you'll have to pick and choose for sure. Yeah, uh, it, it would not be, be an encyclopedia of independent bottlers, <laughs> and and that that's why in my mind I was kind of thinking, what would be the thread mm. that would kind yeah, of run through this, yeah. and what would you pull off of well, that? What so. I would probably do is, and this is just if I were doing it, I would look at who are the big modern ones, like who's mm-hmm. who's who's in the scene right now. Make 100%. sure the majority of your focus is on that, but then be sure to go back and and touch on some of the more well known older you know, independent bottlers that are no longer with us, mm. but have legendary status. Mm-hmm. So exactly. yep. that's probably exactly. what, what I would do if I were. Yep. And, and and I'm sure there's some legendary bottles as well. Like, you know, this particular oh. bottling is known as like the Holy Grail of the, you know, <laughs> yeah, Isla or whatever. So uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you could do something where you have a spotlight on certain specific bottlings that are, that are legendary. And then you could have some that these are ones that, mm. that are kind of available now if you just go looking, you know. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. No, no, agreed. We are of, yeah. we're of one minded. Yeah, indeed. There you go. Yep. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to leave Joshua space oh. to ask questions because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I could run away with this. Oh my God, Jason, you're, be, you're being so generous, uh, leaving me some time to, to ask a question. So I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, you know, just thinking about how you started all of this, you know, it's clear that you've got a good deal of passion backing everything that you're doing from from the blog, which you've been at for, for quite a while now, and, and now the book. Like, can you give our listeners a, a little bit of a, a, a peek into, into your life and where this passion comes from, where this drive comes from for bourbon? So you're a musician, and I'm sure you have a favorite band or two, yeah, right? Sure. Yep. And the only thing I can relate, really, that I've been passionate like this about is music. Mm. So back when uh, I was in college, I was really into REM. <laughs> I was really into the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, I was buying up books and watching documentaries and having friends record on VHS tapes, you know, different live performances that, you know, I might miss because I didn't have the same cable channels they did or whatever. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're reading everything. We didn't have the internet, you know. <laughs> There's a blast like from that. the past. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so you know, everything we got was like from a magazine or MTV yeah. or, you know, the you go down to Barnes & Noble and, you know, 
you know, you didn't have money to buy books, you know, because you're like a you know 19 year old student, or whatever. So you know, you just sit there and you read on the couch, you know. Um, and you know, I was real passionate about that, and that turned into me playing guitar and writing songs, mm-hmm. and and, um, and and that's kind of so from my loving something mm-hmm. like music or certain bands, uh, it translated into me being a creator. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I learned to play guitar. I learned to write songs. I learned how to how to record on Pro Tools, and and it kind of expanded from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is similar to that. You know, I found something. You know, that it touched that it it, it touched that same nerve. It, it struck that same chord in my mm-hmm. in my mind yeah. that I did when I was a teenager and I discovered music. Um, and so I wasn't just buying whiskey and sipping whiskey and tasting whiskey, I then wanted to create. I wanted to, I could not create whiskey, but I could say, well, you know, I can talk about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can, you know, learn about it and I can, you know, share with people my passion for this. Um, And I don't have to be an expert to do that. No one has to be an expert to do that. Um, If if you're excited about a, a particular whiskey, you don't have to just shut up and, and, you know, keep it to yourself. You can share it with people. You can talk yeah. about it. You can make a YouTube video. You can write a blog. You can, uh, you know, whatever. Um, I think that's the best thing about, and, and it's the same way in the music, you know, community. You know, you don't just write a song and lock yourself up in a room and never play it for anyone. You know, you go up to your buddy and you say, hey, man, check this out, you know, or I got this new riff. What do you think about this? You know, <laughs> and you collaborate, and, and that's probably what you guys did when y'all got together and started, you know, single cast nation. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, Hey, I like this. I like this. Oh, this is cool. Let's do this. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. um, you started a band. I mean, you know, <laughs> and so that's kind of, that's what I, I mean, this, this is the same, very same type of thing. Um, it's, it's like when I got into music and it all started for me, you know, buying tapes mm-hmm. and riding my bike with a Walkman on and all that. And I was 12 years old. <laughs> this started, when I started sipping whiskey and enjoying it, you know, uh, you know, seriously, I, I, I mean, I'm 43 now. I, I, I drank whiskey in college. But it was always a mixer or shooter kind of thing. You know, I didn't really get serious to like 2013, 2014 or so. Um, but once that started, it was the same type of passion. It was like, yeah. I've got to buy every whiskey, just like I had to buy every tape, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I got to get the new Beastie Boys or, Hey, I got to go get the new, you know, Mictors or whatever, you know, it all kind of started out the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting, actually, in in talking to to other whiskey fanatics, whiskey geeks, whiskey nerds like ourselves. There was some period in our lives when we transitioned mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. whether it was graphic novels, comic books, CDs, yep. baseball cards, yeah. books, baseball cards. <laughs> yeah. There was, I think, all of us have something that was there when we were, you know, depending on your country of origin, under 18 or under 21, totally that was your area. And then this became your area as an adult. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love hearing that. And it's funny because we all have that level of fanatic about us. And it just ended up manifesting itself in alcohol, you know, which, yeah. you know, gosh, I remember well, how know, much I you, used to spend you, on albums. And thinking, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I, you know, what percentage of my income was albums? Mm. And now I think about the price of an album compared to the price of a bottle of whiskey. I'm like, oh, I should have stuck with albums. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, another thing too, I, it, it also, 
you know, when you have, uh, you get older and you have a family, you know, I can't exactly go out and jam with the guys, you know, anymore. I've got responsibilities, you know, I've got priorities and they do too, you know. Mm -hmm. So you start finding hobbies that you can do, you know, in your spare time, you know, alone a lot, you know, you can Mm -hmm. still share it with other people, but, but you spend a lot of time by yourself, you know, um, and I, I did dabble in, in coin collecting for a while. That was really fun, yeah. and I learned a lot and all that. But the bad thing about it, it's it's it, to get into the big game is is very very expensive, and and you know it, it, they're pretty to look at and share with people. But it's just like, hey, look at what I've got, and, and you know that's it. But like with whiskey, yeah. it's like this. Hey, I want you to try this, and it's like you can share mm. the bottle and you can talk yeah. about it, and, yeah. and and also the investment can be very small. Like you don't have to, you know. Um, you can spend thousands of dollars on a bottle if you want to, but you don't have to. You can spend $25 on a bottle and probably have about as damn good of time as you would spending $500 on a bottle, sure. maybe more, depending on what you're doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it's, it's a whole new world. When you became a coin collector, did your game of, of uh-huh. heads and tails turn into obverse and reverse? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I had to, I had to switch... I had to switch to, to saying that, uh, and that was fun. I mean, I really I enjoyed getting into like toned coins, and there's a whole, you know, that that hobby is just it has a lot of different directions mm-hmm. you can go, but ultimately it 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 does require a good bit of money if you want to get into the fun stuff, um, and you know, with kids and all that, it's just not 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 really a a, a doable ho- hobby for uh, to get into the serious side. Whereas I think with whiskey. You can still get into the serious side of the hobby and still not spend a paycheck on it. I mean, you can, you know, you can find plenty of limited edition special, just like the stuff you guys bought. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, $100 or so, it's a lot of money, but it's not, it's not going to break the bank. You know? Sure, sure. It is funny. I think about the number of emails I get from people who are hiding their latest purchase from their wives. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, no, it's not the whole paycheck. <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah, it, I, 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 cool. I, I just want to clarify a word that we keep throwing around here. When when I hear, you know, a book being written by a super fan, mm. it it doesn't excite me, right? Because it sounds like it's going to be a bit ooey, a bit ooey gooey, yeah. um, maybe not particularly well written, maybe not particularly well researched, right? It's just you know, here here are my thoughts, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and and I do. This is why, just to reiterate something that we mentioned earlier, why I reached out to you. And why voice was so important to me was if I was just to take American spirit and hand it off to somebody and say, hey, you like bourbon. Here's a book by David Jennings. You're going to love it. (laughs) You could read it without knowing it was coming from a super fan. As much as in the introduction, you can give the game away a little bit. Mm -hmm. David Jennings on the front cover of this book just stands as the author of this book. Yep. And, and as much as I, you know, I'm curious because you are known as the super fan and we wanted to use that term, but I don't want anybody to conceive of it in the pejorative hmm. where gotcha. it's shorthand for something that might not actually work for you. For me, David Jennings is the author of this text and David Jennings did a wonderful job with this text. So I don't want anybody to, to get nervous. Well, thank you. As the heroes bandying about the term superfan. <laughs> I, I never really looked, thought of it that, that way. Well, at least not recently. I think when I first started getting the feedback that this is a fan book, I worried about that a little bit. 
then at a certain point you're just like, damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead, we're doing this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it's, I think that it's not going to be a hard sell to a wild turkey fan because they're, they're going to want it just for the subject matter regardless of, of, of who or how it was written. Um, for a bourbon fan, it's probably 50-50. You know, you're going to have some that are going to pick it up, hmm. you know, just because it's about wild turkey. Uh, mm-hmm. The others, maybe not so much. Um, but the average person off the street, I don't know. Um, you know, I could see where what you're talking about there could actually, you know, like you said, you, you if you label something as a super fan's work, you're going to start thinking, okay, this is going to get a little bit, you know, too... Uh, you know, I don't know, like you said, gooey or whatever, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, and I and I hope that uh, it it doesn't come across that way. Um, it does you know, not. But- to to be clear, it does not, because that was one of the ways in which I was reading it, and and yeah. you only told me after I was finished that some of the feedback that had come to you was try to be impartial about this, mm-hmm. try to take on a journalist's eye in writing this. Um, and I could see why somebody would say that. I think that would be the natural advice if if I heard you were embarking on your first book. But the fact that you did pull it off with a with an with an eye to fandom, but also just you're a great writer. You have a oh, tremendous voice. I would happily pick up another book of yours mm-hmm. if there's another book mm-hmm. in you, um, because I like your voice and I like the way you write. And that's true of your blog. And it's true of your book. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I do have another book in me, um, and I'm working on that now. Ooh, uh, awesome. I can't spoil anything just yet, but, but when, when the time comes, uh, I'll definitely let uh, your readers, or listeners, I should say, know. Awesome. <laughs> well, I, I would love to read any version of it. Yeah. It, it's bourbon. It's bourbon-centered. It's not a wild turkey book. It does relate somewhat to wild turkey. Um, but uh, it's something that uh, I'm having a lot of fun digging into right now. So uh, more to awesome. come on that nice one. Nice one. Well, nice well here, and here's another thing. You know, as much as we're talking about voice, you know, I'm thinking voice when I'm reading it. I'm also thinking audience when I read it. And you just touched on audience a moment ago. I All I could think in reading it was Joshua and I have, have been to the Wild Turkey Distillery. Mm-hmm. We've been in that beautiful visitor center that they've had. I could easily imagine a corner display of your book and anybody who finds themselves at Wild Turkey picking up a copy of your book to take away and delve a little more into what they've experienced on site because it is it's such a wonderful place to visit and there are clearly you know tens of thousands of people who are not hardcore whiskey geek you know bourbon lovers who pitch up at Wild Turkey and get to experience it. And I thought for somebody in that instance, seeing your book, buying a copy of it and taking it away, I just thought they would have such a blast reading through it and it would connect them right back to their time on site. And just mm-hmm. just for, for the sake of our audience to, to prove that I'm not blowing smoke, <laughs> the same would be true of a book if you'd pitched up to Heaven Hill or, mm. or Barton or wh- whatever it was you pitched up to, right? Yeah. And I hope those are two different distilleries in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> You've been to I'm both. St- I'm still plodding <laughs> my separate. course. They are. Okay. <laughs> I remembered being in Bricks and Mortar that had those two names on them. Uh, so that I feel positive about that. 
Um, but but it, it is. You're always looking for connectivity. And if we mentioned Andrew Jefford, Jefford's book earlier, if you pitched up on Isla and you were in a visitor centre, there's a very good chance 10 years ago you would have seen Andrew Jefford's book there and you would have taken it home. And as long as it sat on your bookshelf, it would connect you to your time in that location at mm-hmm. that distillery. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was hugely important that you got your audience right as well. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I hope that that happens, and I think it might. Um, Campari, if you're listening. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I do think that, that it, the one thing about the, the gift shop there in the visitor center, there's a lot of cool stuff in there, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of good bottles in there. But, you know, if people are flying, uh, sometimes that becomes tricky when it comes to, you know, alcohol. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. then you're left with like a T-shirt or a, or a glass. And then you also, if it's a glass, you got to wrap that well. And, you know, it, it, you know, what's the ideal souvenir? Um, and, you know, I looked, they did have a few books the last time I was there. It was some cocktail books and this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, a, a book about the distillery would be nice, uh, especially if, it, if you're visiting and you're not familiar with Wild Turkey or you're not as familiar with it, um, then you get to take something home that you can look at later and remind you of your visit and also learn some things that maybe you didn't learn on the tour. Um, so that would be cool. I mean, you know, I, I can't lie. It would be awesome to see that on display. <laughs> of course. At the visitor center. It, 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 of course not so it much for, uh, for a financial standpoint, but just a, it would just make me feel good. Oh you know, God, like yeah. I would just be like, wow, I'm, you know, it, it would, it would, it would choke me up a little bit, you know, and then it would be even cooler if, like, you know, you know, Jimmy maybe picked it up and signed his picture or something <laughs> in it. I mean, God, that would be awesome. You know, I'd love to see something uh, like that. But uh, you know, one day dreams. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I would, I would love that though. Well, I can guarantee you, the next time Josh and I are on site, we will be looking around the visitor center and asking, like, do you have David Jennings' uh-huh. book? <laughs> like, um, do you, awesome. Do you, it's. Yeah, American Spirit. Yeah, yeah. David Jen. Awesome. Yeah, you, you know, don't have do it. That. You know, the, the one that's specifically uh, about your distillery. That one. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that if anyone is listening and they're in Kentucky and they need a copy, Justin's House of Bourbon uh, has uh, copies uh, in nice. Louisville and Lexington. And then oh, if fantastic. you're in Tennessee, uh, Elixir Spirits uh, has copies as well. Okay. Um, oh, terrific. Know, those are limited, of course, but. Uh, you know, they can find them there without ordering them online. Okay. Awesome. Yep. Good. Awesome. Yep. Good to support bricks and mortar. Definitely. You know, David, I wonder if you could share with us and with our listeners a little bit, um, you know, some of the people who, whom you've reached out to, to get some of this historical information, right? I mean, there's so much info here going back to the Russells and then, of course, to the Rippies. Like, who did you speak with? Who were these authorities that gave you all of the information that you used to support, you know, writing this book? Well, it's the, interestingly, on the Russell side, it was Roger Street. Um, Roger Street is Joanne's brother. So Roger's Jimmy's grandson. Um, and Joanne is a brand ambassador there at the distillery. Roger is her brother, and Roger is the, essentially the family historian. So he has all the photos mm-hmm. and the stories and, and the newspaper clippings, and he knows all of the you know, uncles, aunts, and cousins and everything. He, he was the one that I was told 
that I should talk to. Oh, okay. And um, Roger was, I, I talked to him on the phone on several occasions. We had lots of email exchanges, lots of documents exchanged. Um, I could not have done this without Roger Street's help. Um, he basically was my key source on the Russell side. I did talk to Jimmy at the distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to Eddie on multiple occasions. Um, I talked to Bruce a little bit, but mainly it was Roger um, okay. and a uh, great source. Uh, the, the source on the Rippy side was, was Thomas Rippy IV or Tom Rippy. Um, he uh, and I connected via email. Mm-hmm. He was very helpful. He sent me a lot of photographs. He clarified a lot of the Rippy research that I was able to find, uh, be it online or through Ancestry. Um, he was able to kind of connect dots that were missing. Um, and so he was very helpful uh, mm. to me. Um, and those were my two primary sources on the family side. Um, Campari, uh, Sarah Bassett was very helpful. Uh, she's in charge of PR there at Campari America. And uh, Dave Carricker was very helpful. Um, Dave Ensler, there was a lot of people mm-hmm. that kind of helped me, you know, along the way answer some little questions, tidbits, you know, facts and stuff I needed. Um, it was very much a, uh, a pull from as many places as possible effort. Yeah, sure. um, and, uh, you know, I had some other plans for the books. I mean, for the book that, that didn't quite happen. Like I had a section I was going to do where, where I was going to have, you know, celebrities, in wild turkey like you know well, john wayne or president truman or mm. herb kelleher there were a lot of names i could have explored and gone down and i was going to have a little feature in that and i even got uh reached out to uh, southwest and and got you know permission on their side but it just didn't it didn't happen like mm. I, I mean it was just it also seemed to kind of distract a little bit like it was going to be kind of like you know evil knievel and all that's fun to talk about but did it have anything really to do with the story of Wild Turkey? You know? <laughs> right, and so yeah. it, when it was in there, it was like kind of in the middle as like an insert, and it was a very much a distraction, and I could not figure out where to place it. Hmm. And, I mean, I'd written paragraphs, and I was just like, it's just gone. Like, I just, I got yeah. to take it out. Yeah. And so I ended up taking that section out, and I lost, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand words or something. But, you know, it, it made the book flow better. Hmm. So, um, but there were a lot of places, sources and folks, but... As far as, you know, people that helped me, you know, uh, as far as individuals that I interviewed with that gave me the most information, Roger Street, for sure, and uh, Tom Rippey on the Rippey side, those were were key. Okay, so so now you've got all of this information, you compile it, you write a book using this information. What are the next steps? What do you, how do you ensure that you've got everything right the timelines everything like what what were your next steps to getting to this final draft or getting close to what is your final draft ready for print what i did when when i finished my draft i went to a local printer because i thought you know you can send by somebody sheets and stuff that you print off on microsoft word and it just doesn't it looks like a book report it doesn't look like a book (laughs) you know it doesn't have that thing to it so i went to a local printer and i had them make me a book. It had no pictures, but it was it was the book with just mm. text in actual book format, like a digest size, eight and a half by five and a half book. Sure. And I had about 20 of those made. Um, and those went to like Michael Veach, uh, Fred Minnick, uh, Roger, uh, Tom, Rippey. Mm. Um, I sent it to uh, the Russells. I sent it to Campari. I sent it all over to a lot of places. Uh, 
John Rudd, who's a friend of mine, who's, a, who's very knowledgeable on wild turkey. Um, and I had all of these people take a look at it, read what they wanted, and then get back with me. And some of them, you know, just signed off on it, said, this is great, you know. And then others sent me, like John sent me, like, the book back mm-hmm. with, like, sticky notes and, like, handwritten, like, circling this. I mean, like, he basically rewrote a lot of the sections and corrected things <laughs> that, like, that I had wrong. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate everyone that did that. Um, and that uh, kind of, once once that was behind me, I felt confident that, like, okay, this research is is valid. Um, I also found some things that, like, there's a, a history wall in the visitor center there in Lawrenceburg, and I found some things on the wall that didn't jive with the research I was pulling. And so <laughs> I had to dig deeper. And so I ended up finding government records to back up the correct dates, the correct names of places and people. And I sent that information to Campari, and I, I just said, I just want to let you all know, you know, my book is going to say different things than what's on that wall, and I wanted you to be aware of why and where I got the information from. So I sent yeah. them all of my research so that they would know that I'm not contradicting them like without some type of basis, in fact. Wow. Um, and it's minor stuff, you know, like dates that, you know, businesses changed hands and changed operational names and these types of things. But I wanted to make sure they were accurate. Um, so, I, you know, I shared that. I think that the one thing, though, that really, the research that struck me uh it was the most profound of all the research was when I discovered uh, T.B. Rippey's cause of death because he died from pernicious anemia, which is a condition that my wife suffers from. Hmm. But hmm. It's, it's, it's treatable now. Like, I mean, all you have to do is get B12 injections, you know, and, you know, yeah. they monitor your levels and you're fine. But they didn't know that at the turn of the century. And, and so if you had pernicious anemia, it was a death sentence, you know. And so instantly was like, wow, this is cool. Because, you know, there were all these theories I had read about why T.B. Rippey had sold out. Yeah. And they were like, well, you know, the Whiskey Trust and, and uh, you know, there were bully tactics and they were trying to pull him into the trust. Or, or he had a lot of financial trouble, so he's gonna, he sold out to, you know, pay his debts. And, but it never really was like a good answer. I'm like, well, if he sold out, he, could, he had all these sons that he could have pushed the business down to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway... Uh, to find that and then that he went to Battle Creek at the uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium where uh, John Kellogg, you know, of Kellogg cereal fame, you know, was, <laughs> was basically treating him and he dies there. It was a really interesting storyline for a bit there that like, you know, you know, to have this connection from Lawrenceburg to Kellogg cereal, you know, it was, it was quite interesting. And uh, so that was a cool little thing to find. But even um, connected yeah. right into your family, like that's remarkable to yeah. have... You know, the mm-hmm. pernicious anemia? Pernicious anemia, right. And it, which is, it's, which is it's a, a tremendous tre- name for anything. Like yeah, pernicious it, it, anemia. Not just anemia. It's a very bad disease if, if, if you don't treat it. It's, it's basically like multiple sclerosis is what wow. it ends up being. Wow. That's uh, incredible. As far as symptoms go. But, uh, but, you know, and the worst thing you could probably do is put someone on a cereal diet uh, when, when, whenever they have that because you need protein, you need meat, you uh. know, uh, because you, you can only get B12 from animal sources. So, I mean, you know, whether it's cheese or milk or something, you know, now they can manufacture it. But back then, you know, you, you should have been giving people liver and these types of things. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. But, uh, but, I mean, even then, if you have true pernicious anemia, that's not going to save your life because you lack an intrinsic factor in your stomach that bonds and, 
and, and gets the B12 into your system. And I'm no doctor, but you know, that's <laughs> my understanding of it. But, I just play uh, one in my book. <laughs> yeah, but that was probably the worst. The, the worst thing he could have done was probably eat a cereal diet. But uh, it, the whole remarkable. Battle Creek Sanitarium is a, a interesting story in and of itself. So you know, I don't want to go off the tr- rails, but y'all, if anyone's interested in some really strange, you know, medical practices, phototherapy and electrotherapy and hydrotherapy oh. and all, yep. all kinds of interesting things happened at, at Battle Creek. Gosh. Yep. Uh, so the, the history of American medicine is, is fascinating in its own right. I, I'm halfway through a book on Bellevue, the history of Bellevue. And, and again, you know, practices that were put into effect or practices that, that some doctors argued you know, vor- voraciously for um, or, or vociferously is the word I'm, I'm trying for, vociferously. Um, you know, the, the <laughs> fact that they're arguing for things that we now just accept. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's remarkable. So I could imagine maybe a, another side project for the author, <laughs> David Jennings. I was like, I'm going to stick with bourbon, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it is, it's fascinating to read about, but I can't, I don't know if I want to get in, go down that path. Uh, so, so for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to ask you the most obvious question of all <laughs> obvious questions. But, you know, we've clearly got a lot of Scotch lovers who listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Whenever we put up a, a bourbon episode, it gets passed around the bourbon community. And, and so I'm asking this really for the benefit of this, the Scotch uh, drinking listeners uh, out there. And you touch on it in the book, but obviously if someone's listening to the interview, they're not necessarily reading the book. And you know what the question is. Why wild turkey? <laughs> well, I, it goes back to, I think, back we touched on before when we talked about music. So, you know, why Pearl Jam? You know, why Jimmy exactly. Hendrix? Okay. Exactly. So something speaks to you that, 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 you know, you connect with, whether it's in the lyrics or the... The, the, the sound, the vocals, or the chord progression, or, or the, the, uh, the emotion, okay? Something connects with you, and that's what happened with Wild Turkey. I think that uh, part of it was a surprise, because uh, much like with music, if you've ever bought a CD or whatever, and you, you kind of did it on a gamble, and you weren't expecting much out of it, and then you're like, wow, this is like my favorite band now, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> It's the same kind. That's what happened with Wild Turkey. I was going through all of these other whiskeys, mm. and I landed on Wild Turkey. At, I bought like a pint or like a 375, whatever, you know, um, and wasn't expecting much out of it because uh, all I remembered was college, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and I was like, this is really good whiskey. This is not bad whiskey at all. This is actually really, really good whiskey for the price, you know, yeah. and, uh, and that's when I started as I do with anything, you know, I'm looking into just like I did with any other whiskey. I'll kind of read about it some. And it, it just made me want to read more. And then it made me want to go buy more and buy different <laughs> expressions. Same thing. Just like with a band. Like, you know, if you got on a track and you became, you know, a, a fan of Soundgarden, you're going to go out and buy every Soundgarden thing that was ever recorded, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's the same thing that happened with Wild Turkey. Um, and it just that's just something about it. I really... Just like there's Radiohead fans or whatever, I'm a, I'm a Wild Turkey fan. Same same thing, really is. I like the idea of single cask releases now being the equivalent of bootleg cassettes 
uh, in the 1980s. Like you've given me a whole new romantic vision of what there, Josh there and I go. endeavor to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I, I just wanted to. Too. I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of say that out loud because you, you make so many good points and you you show an ability to make wonderful connections mm-hmm. that being able to, to connect bourbon fanaticism back to music or football team or soccer team or, or what have you, like I just think you make the point really well. So I asked an obvious question, oh, but I really like your answer. Well, well thanks. I appreciate that. I, I think that... Uh, most people will probably relate to that, you know. Exactly. You find mm-hmm. something, whether mm-hmm. it's just the spirit itself. Like some people might say, you know, they might treat, you know, Isla Scotch like, you mm-hmm. know, a band or something, you know. Um, and then they view the different distilleries as different albums or whatever. Some people might drill down further like me and oh, find a specific yes. distillery, you know. Oh, yes. So that's, that's, that's the, oh. the, the, it's a very, very similar thing. Oh yeah, there's there's nothing like meeting. You know, I had a really popular segment on my blog back when I had a blog, jumalt.com, where I compared all of eight Isla distilleries, eight at that time, to an individual band, which was a really oh that you know, would be cool. Yeah, it was a really popular segment. You I'm know, have to check that out. That sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it was it's a terrific series. That sounds great. That that's something I think a lot of people could relate to. Um, you see a lot of pairing things. You know, people pair food with whiskey. They pair mm-hmm. cigars mm-hmm. with whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Desserts like candies and these types of things with whiskey. Yep. Um, and I, I think that it's only natural to, you know, look at something like the arts, uh, like music, and and pair it with whiskey. I think mm-hmm. that that's absolutely a very cool yep. way to do it. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd a, I had a monthly feature. Sure, sure. Uh, back when I was in charge of Good Scotch Drink, where a good friend of mine, Jim Hendigas, once a month would bring together a piece of music with a short story with a whiskey mm-hmm. and oh, would wow. just kind of tie the three of those together in a singular experience. And it was it was absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and what, just you're, what, you're, shows. Well, what you're talking about is a sensory you know, exactly. experience. And, and exactly. so why not use your ears, you know? Um, exactly. It, it, a lot of people, like I said, they'll do cigars. They get the smell. They get the taste, just like the whiskey. Um, but to to do it with your ears, um, yeah, that's 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 cool. Yeah. So, David, I have always wanted to ask this question of an author. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've now written a book. Is there a particular passage in your book that you'd like to read? to our listeners, something that gives them an idea of your voice? I, I, you know what? There's a, a passage that several people have pointed out to me that they've appreciated. Um, and so I think I'll do that. Um, I'll share that one because it, uh, it you know, it kind of touches on who Jimmy Russell is mm. and why Jimmy Russell was so special to Wild Turkey. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read this uh and just to give you a little frame of reference, um, uh, it talks about Bill Hughes. And for those listening that aren't familiar with Bill Hughes, Bill Hughes was the master distiller uh, at the distillery there in Lawrenceburg before Jimmy. And oh, he is okay. the person that took Jimmy under his wing and, and taught Jimmy how to make whiskey. Um, and there's a whole section of the book in here where I talk about 
you know, that special relationship that they had. Hmm. Um, and, and so, but I think that this kind of sums up uh, why Jimmy is the master distiller and why Jimmy was handpicked from many other people uh, to do this, pretty much straight out of high school. Um, hmm. yeah. Now, uh, but it says, okay, it's unknown exactly what Bill Hughes saw in young Jimmy Russell, but I'd wager it was the same thing we see in Jimmy today. A charming yet humble personality with firm dedication and a willingness to see a job done right. Attitude. Many folks work, fewer folks work hard, and even fewer work hard with an unwavering positive attitude. <laughs> and that's Jimmy Russell. <laughs> um, you, know, you take someone that uh, you know, loves what they do for a living and uh, like Jimmy says, you never work a day in your life. Yeah. Um, and and that, that kind of sums up why Jimmy, you know, has the career that he has and where he's at today is because he stuck with it and he was positive. And, and Bruce and I had this conversation um, a couple weeks ago. I, I talked to Bruce on the, over the phone and, and we, we, we uh, had this conversation about Jimmy about, you know, a lot of people focus on Jimmy's ability to distill whiskey and, uh, you know, all these legendary dusty bottlings that everybody just goes crazy for now, you know. <laughs> but what a lot of folks fail to realize, and, and people that have been in the industry a long time, they know this, but like a lot of the folks that are getting into whiskey now don't realize, is how important of a role Jimmy played as a brand ambassador. And I don't mean that in title. I mean that in essence. Uh, mm -hmm. Jimmy put a face, not just a wild turkey, but he put a face to bourbon. Mm. And, you know, if you saw yeah. Jimmy Russell, I mean, he was one of the first ones, he and, and Booker, you know, traveled. You know, they traveled, and, and I talk about this in the book, they traveled in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, and they went out and they kind of said, hey, you know, bourbon is good. Bourbon isn't just, you know, what you drink, you know, playing cards, you know. Um, and, and, and Jimmy is so fun to talk to. I mean, he just... He listens and he laughs and he <laughs> connects with you and he's relatable. He's just like this country boy that's just like, <laughs> you know, so easy to get along with. And I think that yeah. that was what Bourbon needed. Bourbon yeah. needed people like Booker and Jimmy to kind of say, you know, this isn't a bunch of just, you know, hillbillies getting drunk or something. This <laughs> is like, these are fun people. You know, these are, yeah. these are, these are people that, that are hardworking, blue-collared folks like me. I like this, you know. And, uh, and so I, I think that what, you know, people getting into whiskey now need to understand is that it's more than just the taste. It's more than just the spirit itself. Um, there's that whole, you know, uh, heritage and, and uh, community. And, and Jimmy, Jimmy made that happen, and he did that extremely well. Still does. You know, unfortunately, with COVID, he's kind of locked down. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm it, glad to hear that. An asset for for wild turkey, um, and, and some of the other distilleries have similar things. Um, you know, Bill Samuels and and, and Fred No, and and but but you know, um, Jimmy's a living legend. He really is. He's one of the mm -hmm. the, the last of the, of the few greats. So uh, you know, cheers to Jimmy. Yeah, cheers, cheers to Jimmy indeed. indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, oh, that was that was beautiful. I, you know, 
you transitioned that into that so perfectly. I just want to make it clear to the listeners we hadn't discussed that with you beforehand. No, <laughs> like that was. But, but thanks to, on the spot, you knew the passage from the book that you wanted to share. Well, because several people have reached out to me in the last few days. Like one person put it on their Facebook, another person put it on their LinkedIn. I had a couple emails about you know I, I really love this. This is I'm putting this on my wall at work. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I'm like they really enjoyed that little passage there, and and it's really. It's about it's the essence of Jimmy, but if we could all capture, if we could all capture that, you know, we could all succeed at something, you know, um, yeah. whether it's in your personal life as as you know a husband or a father or a brother or whatever sister or whoever, um, or if it's in your professional life. Um, but you know, if you can work hard with an unwavering attitude um, and you're passionate about something, uh, you're going to go somewhere. I mean, you really will. People will recognize that. Um, and you'll make the, whatever you're working for or towards is going gonna, is gonna to be so much better for it. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that about Jimmy and the Wild Turkey Distillery because to my ear, you've just described yourself and the oh. book that we're here talking about. <laughs> well, I, 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 that's, that's, that's more than generous. But uh, yeah, I, I, it, I wouldn't have done it if I wasn't passionate about it. I'll tell you that right now. You know, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, we like this wild turkey book. We want you to write a, a book about X distillery. I'm not going to do it. I mean, even if the check looks glamorous, because I just know the book's not going to read very well. It, it has to have that. <laughs> it has to, you have to love. Yeah, it, it's just like, you know, you could go up to, like, we go back to music again. You could go up to, you know, any other, you go to Bruce Springsteen and say, hey, I want you to, you know, you know, write a song, you know, that sounds like, I don't know, whatever, you know, he's going to be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. And I appreciate that, you know, and, uh, uh-huh. and, and that's, you, you have to kind of, it's the same thing, you know, it's like, I, I, I've got to be passionate about what I do. And I do, I try to do that with my blog. I try to do that with my, you know, Patreon. And I try to, you know, make sure that, you know, I'm always injecting my, my personal feelings. And sometimes that upsets people like, you know, I, there, I got a little bit of heat from this, you know, masters keep bottled and bond. I rated it a five out of five, and you know, people don't seem to understand that. You know, you know, my rating scale is not a comparison scale in the sense of I'm trying to say that this is the best whiskey of all time. Yeah, um, I'm just saying when 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 you look at Wild Turkey, this was a home run. That's all I'm saying. You know, and and I, I feel like a lot of folks don't use the full scale. Like yeah. it's like well, you know, I'm only ever going to ninety. I will never give. You know, it's like. You know, it's like, I don't know, to me, it's kind of like, I don't look at it like a, a grade, like A, B, uh-huh. C, D, E, F, or whatever you want to say. Um, I look at it like, like I said, is, was it a home run? Yeah, I think Eddie hit a home run with that one. Uh, five out of five. Da- you know? David, I immediately want you to change how you do this. I don't want you to use five stars anymore. I want you to use home run Triple, single, double, double single, <laughs> and Grand strike slam, out. Right? Come yeah, on, man. Do it yeah, for me. Go. Do it for me. Oh, and that would be the dipper. best system. We, you know, uh, that would be a good uh, system. When it, you, you could even, if someone mislabels something or they're, they misrepresent, you could call it a foul. Uh, uh, or an error, have, right? You could have an error. <laughs> yeah, you could have an error. That's true. You could yeah. have an error. Yeah, E6. That would be a cool rating system, wouldn't it? Yeah, how would you, uh, how would you do an RBI, though? Um, so you'd have well, to do like an average there, I guess, yeah. right? 
You, yeah, you could I, have a scoring it, single. Like, yeah, yeah. Be, you could you could run averages, yeah, and uh, that okay, would be interesting. Okay. It would be an interesting scoring system. Somebody <laughs> listening is going to do it, and that's fine. Have at it. I would enjoy reading it. Well, because Josh and I, you know, ever since we had our own blogs, like, and part of the reason Josh and I got on so well, neither one of us went for a rating system. No, never. We went for a concluding paragraph. Mm-hmm. And and I can understand, yes, if you don't want to read through the nose, the palate, the finish, and, and those can be esoteric and those can mm-hmm. be individualistic, but you could have that closing paragraph where you try to summarize what you just experienced. And the issue for me personally, and, and what I've always discussed with Joshua, was that a 100-point scale never communicated what we were thinking. No. A five-star rating never communicated. Right. There, there was nothing numerical because if you make it out of 100, you you don't go beyond 90. If you make it out of 10, you don't go beyond nine. If you make it out of five, you don't go beyond yep. four and a half. Like you're always running into the same parameters. And True. so, yeah, it might take a little bit longer to read a concluding paragraph, but hopefully there's something in there that we can give you to take away. And when what's been great is that concluding paragraph has really made its way to our own labels, where we now have kind of a truncated tasting note mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. tries to summarize the experience of what's in the bottle. But but it can be very frustrating when you send out your samples for review and somebody says, this is Epic, amazing, wonderful. Yeah. I would crawl across <laughs> yeah. broken glass to consume this. 88 out of 100. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the other 12? How, exactly. how do we get the other 12? <laughs> yeah. like, I understand not everything's 100. Like you said, with you know the 5 out of 5 doesn't mean it's the best whiskey on the face of the planet. Right. But it's a damn good whiskey it was a from home this distillery. Right. That's right. It, 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 that's the toughest part because if you don't have a rating, okay, then it's like you, you don't really have a way to um, kind of say where it lands in comparison to the other turkeys. So I have mm-hmm. it kind of like that. Um, at the same time, you run the, the, the gamble of saying, well, okay, now I'm going to give it this rating, but then somebody's going to go back and find some past review I've done and say, well, wait a minute, whoa, 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 you gave <laughs> yeah. this. So, so, yeah. How can you dare give this, you know? And, but at the same time, it's like I, I try my best to be as, as fair. What I don't like is when people just look at the rating and they don't read the review. Mm, so like 100%. I had one person, yeah. that I did the rare breed rye, and I did like I gave it like a 3.75 out of 5. And uh, somebody was like, 3.75 out of 5, that doesn't sound very good to me. I'm not wasting my money on it. And I'm like, did you read the notes and the impression <laughs> right. and everything? Like, you know, and 3.75 on my scale is a good, a good rating, but, you know. Whatever. (laughs) You can't please everybody. (sighs) Last thing I want to mention on the review part, that that something that I did early on, and I look back now and I would do differently, but this just shows experience, not inexperience to experience. And so I'll leave it there. But like, you know, early in my journey with Wild Turkey when I was writing reviews, um, I was very, very doting on the dusty whiskeys mm. and I was very critical of the modern whiskeys okay mm-hmm. and and I, if I could go back and do it again I would not do it that heavy-handed because what I've learned is that no dusty expression from any distillery 
taste like its modern counterpart. No. It just doesn't. Nope. You know, if you go take some old bottling of, of old Fitzgerald or, you know, Weller or whatever, and you compare it to today's, it is not going to taste anything like it. It's nope. just not. Same with makers. If you take makers from the 80s and makers from now, they don't taste the same. Yeah, different whiskeys. Whatever it might be. And I'm sure the same thing exists in Scotland. And it's because things change. Yeah. And it's unfair to say, well, some expression from 1974, you know, is just so much better than, you know, 2014. And then to blast the 2014 for how many flaws it has <laughs> when you're not really looking at it on its own. Hmm. And I, I, that's what I like about Single Cast Nation is that you guys focus on one cask. You know, and you're not going, you're not taking that cask and comparing it to every cask ever made by said distillery for the last 50 years. You don't even care about that. You're just like, this cask stuck out to us. You know, that's why we're picking this to bottle. Mm-hmm. And I feel yeah. like I, I need to be more sensitive to that going forward as I need to realize that whether it's a single barrel or whether it's a blend, you know, whatever the expression might be, judge it on its own merits you know, or flaws um, before being quick to compare it to so many other things that may have no way or no chance of even getting in that same ballpark because it was distilled 40 years ago um, under totally different circumstances with totally different equipment and means. And, and uh, anyway, so that's yeah. one thing that I would yeah, like thank to, you, to tell everybody yeah. bashing Thanks. modern wild turkey and comparing it to dusty wild turkey uh, is that, you know, you know, get over it. I mean, there. <laughs> You're not going to make dusty wild turkey now, you know. So <laughs> no. enjoy what you got. But you know, if you don't like modern wild turkey, maybe you just don't like modern wild turkey. But don't bash it because it doesn't taste like what it did 40 years ago. Because 100. The same thing exists for every other distillery out there. Okay. So final question: uh, Looking forward in time, what does wild turkey have going on now, or what, what are they working on now that has you excited about them? and their brand writ large for the future? Okay. Uh, well, I love their rye. I think that there is great potential to grow in the rye department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we only have a handful of rye expressions. Um, I think that we've yet to see what can be done. Uh, you know, you could have something that's very mature, like talking about getting older than Cornerstone. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just introduced rear breed rye, which is a uh, cast strength, you know. I haven't had and, that and, one yet. Oh, it's awesome. And, oh, nice. and I mean, nice. it fits a, a niche. It, it, it's very much comparable to rare breed bourbon in the sense of, you know, you have one-on-one bourbon mm-hmm. and rare breed kind of kicks that profile up a notch. Yeah, sure. Um, same thing here. You have one-on-one rye and rare breed rye just takes that profile and kicks it up a notch. Okay. So, you know, you have something new there that's real exciting, which is, which is barrel-proof, you know, rye. But I think there's more room to grow in the rye department. And one thing that I hope that they do um, and I've talked to Bruce about this before, is that, okay, the bourbon recipe is Jimmy's bourbon recipe that was passed down to him from Mr. Hughes, and it's that one bourbon mash bill that they, they're known for doing. I don't think they need to touch that. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what classic wild turkey right there. That's, yeah. that's pure Jimmy Russell. Okay, yeah. But Jimmy doesn't like rye whiskey, um, and he doesn't really care for it other than making sure it's a quality product to market. Um, so... It would not it would not infringe on his legacy, 
you know, to change the rye mash bill or introduce new rye mash bills. So maybe they should keep the Kentucky rye mash bill that they presently have and continue to bottle 101 rye and this type of thing. But maybe they could go back and do other rye mash bills like that are higher in content, like 65% or 80% mm. rye. Um, maybe some of these mash bills that wild turkey used to source for their rye, oh, um, which okay. came from Baltimore and it came from, you know, Pennsylvania and, and, and Illinois. Um, those are areas that they could grow in and without, without messing with Jimmy's legacy at all. Like you yeah. could change the rye all day and he wouldn't care. Um, so then they also <laughs> could do, I think finishing is becoming a cool thing now. Like, you know, for the longest time, finishing in bourbon wasn't really, eh, you know, like I've had Sherry Signature and that was cool, but it wasn't all that great. And then, you know, yeah, the Master's Keep one was. Ma- yeah. When Eddie decided to pick up Revival, wow, that's that's amazing. And then this uh, latest uh, Bardstown Bourbon Company has a Chateau de la Bade, uh, uh finished bourbon. Uh, I don't know if y'all have tried it yet, no. but uh, so it's Armagnac finished. It's awesome. I mean, it's, it's really good stuff. And I'm thinking, this is an area that wild turkey could grow in. So he's, we've had Sherry Signature, we've had Revival, you know. But, I mean, there's rum casks, there's Armagnac casks, there's Cognac mm-hmm. casks. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sky's the limit, as y'all know, with scotch. I mean, you, there's a lot of finishing you could do. Wild Turkey even has their own barrels they could finish in. You could take rye and mm-hmm. dump it into bourbon barrels, ex-bourbon. You could take bourbon and dump it into ex-rye barrels. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of potential for Wild Turkey to grow. Um, their single barrel program could become, you know, barrel proof. That would be yep. awesome. Yep. Um, they uh, could have NCF rare breed because right now rare breed still chill filtered. So that's something to look forward to. I'd like to see some age statements come back. Beams bringing back age statements. So you got nine year Knob Creek, twelve year Knob Creek, fifteen year Knob Creek. All right, Wild Turkey, let's bring back the twelve year one hundred and one. You know, <laughs> let's do it. You know, so uh, there's a lot of room to grow. Um, I, and other, one last thing uh, that I'll mention too is that in that Whiskey Barons line, which never really impressed me until Saffle, uh, but when when Eddie made WB Saffle, I was like, now this is really really good. So if y'all haven't tried WB Saffle yet, mm-hmm. uh, Eddie put a lot of time into that one, and that is a killer blend. I'm like, this is what rare breed should be. Like hmm. it's it's now it's only sold in, in 375. So I mean, you're, you're paying 50 bucks for a 375. But in my opinion, that one is worth it because it has the taste of a $100 LE, like if you were buying it in a 750. So to me, it's worth the price. Um, but WB Saffle, is, it's very good. And Eddie put a lot of time into it. It's a very nice blend. It's like a 6, 8, 10, and 12, but it's mostly 10-year uh, bourbon, and it's bottled at uh, 104, 107. I'm drawing a blank on it. But anyway, just, just over 100 proof, and um, it's, it's good. It's excellent. Oh, that's that's oh. so fantastic. So well, thank you. Yes, oh, thank, thank you, you guys. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's brilliant. Was, yeah, I, 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 I always I always like talking with you guys. Y'all are y'all are always uh, you you have the best questions and you approach things. <laughs> it, it's not the it's not the typical Q and A. Not that I, I don't mind the typical Q and A. Sure, um, yeah. but it's it's always fun talking to you guys because I get well, that little little bit of different perspective there from you guys. Yeah, I, I'm cute. glad I could still ask why wild turkey. The deep dive is what I'm known for. Well, that was a downright lovely conversation with the good David Jennings. He's a wonderful fellow. And our bottling of wild turkey has been phenomenal, wonderful and amazing in its own right. Arguably one of the best things to come from it is our friendship with David Jennings. Hmm. 
Yeah, I can't add anything to that. Because so in, let me add this. Yeah, go ahead. Since we recorded this interview with David Jennings, yes. Do you know where his book can be found? I was so excited to hear this as we were <laughs> we're having the conversation. You can hear it on on the on wax, and he's saying, "Oh, you know, just I just want to get my book into the visitor center at Wild Turkey." And guess where it is now? It's in the visitor center at Wild Turkey. I, I saw the image on Instagram and I messaged David immediately. And you know me, social media, texting, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I'm not, I'm not overly interested in it. I don't do a lot of it. Immediately, the second I saw it, I messaged him and I said, this is so wonderful and so well-deserved. I could not be happier for you. And since that has happened, mm-hmm. his book has sold out. The first run has sold out, and he is now exploring avenues for a second publishing run. Yeah, I found out about that. I was on Instagram, and he and our friend Robin Cooper, uh, who's yes, right, who's absolutely with, a Scottish guy, he's with Campari. He used to focus absolutely. on on Glenn Grant. Now he focuses. Well, he focuses on a few things. You say Scottish lad? He's a bagpiper. I didn't know that Robin was a, was a bagpiper. He is. When he was living in San Francisco, he would sometimes post, again, social media uh, posts. Is that, is that the correct nomenclature? Is that how the kids say it? He would post a social media post? I think I, I think I down. think, yes, uh, that he would up a post. <laughs> I think that's how they would say it. Let's up, so, up the post. So my but he would post videos of himself practicing his bagpipes. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. But any but anyway, so so the the two if of you, them if you if you didn't know any better, you mm. would simply think it was a Scotsman fucking an octopus in San Francisco. <laughs> I'm just going for the highest percentage of jokes. Not used in a podcast. <laughs> that one's staying. That one is staying. So I had caught a conversation between our friend Robin Cooper and David Jennings on Instagram. Robin was doing one of his weekly yep. chats. It was and a great interview. I'm not on Instagram a lot, but I saw it said Robin Cooper is going live with David Jennings. And I said, this is going to be good fun. So I... I put it on and I'm watching and I think I may have been cooking dinner at the same time. Like it was just great being a fly on the wall during that conversation and, and hearing David talk about the history of, of Wild Turkey and the Russells and the Rippies and and then hearing, you know, Robin's viewpoint as well. He had some really good knowledge to pop in and he made some wonderful connections to Glenn Grant and Wild Turkey, and Dennis Malcolm, and Jimmy Russell, and, you know, both of these guys just born into whiskey. Yeah, it was it was really great, and it was during that conversation where I heard that David had completely sold out of his book, that he was looking for a second printing, and I thought that was just such wonderful news. But again, it speaks to what we said before the interview. It's a well-written well-presented book on the history of all Turkey and the people behind it. 
Mm-hmm. You don't sell out. You don't get into the visitor center with something half-assed. No. And David, as you can tell by the interview, is not a half-assed guy. He is full-ass. He's full-ass. Yeah. Yeah. I've always said that about him. Full-ass. He is all the way. All the way. <laughs> uh, you and I wanted to share a little bit of news, seeing as we're talking about American spirits. I thought it'd be good to do that slightly deeper dive into yes. our Balcones bottling, which will be released. Extra, extra, real about it, life story, a playboy, penny, extra, 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 real about it, me and that playboy. Our listeners, and likely you too, Jason, have noticed that before waking up the paperboy, I did not mention when this Balcones will be released. I actually cut it off, and that's because we don't have a specific date. I know we're thinking sometime in September. It could be early September. It could be late September. We honestly do not know. We're not here to talk about the release date. Rather, we're here to talk about the selection process of the Balcones and how that all all went and what people can expect. Yeah, and just like in the last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, we did a little deeper dive into the whistle pig. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so interesting. And, and I know we'll come back to Balcones in just a second. But this whistle pig is such a great example of you and I making selections and then negotiating price and then working on contracts and then securing the bottling date and then working out labels, and then getting TTB approval. (laughs) It's a long-ass process. And we're getting to this point where we've mentioned the Whistlepig a lot. Facebook group, podcast, emails coming in and out of our our info at singlecastnation.com account. We have got to a point where we're desperate to get that back into our mouths. Yeah. Right? We want to revisit those flavors that led to us selecting it. <laughs> and then I got thinking about the balcones. You and I were in New York City. You came down from Connecticut. I flew in from Virginia. Uh-huh. And it was before the inaugural Keepers of the Huech dinner in New York City. When did that happen? No. So actually, this is before that. Because that inaugural Keepers of the Quake ceremony was in August of last year. That's, you, that's, what, I'm, yeah. that's what I'm getting to. But, yeah. but you it was and sunny. I, it was warm. We were in kilts. But you and I, Jason, actually tasted and made this selection, made, made this the month prior when we had our annual business meeting in July. It was in our hotel room yes it was it's not, 100%. It's not true it's 100 true. true it's 100 it's not it's, it's not jason it's it not is. it's not it's not because you didn't bring them and we had it i sat on the window ledge on our in our hotel room in new jersey and you had the three and you we ended up having to batch them in these bottles because we had nothing to take away this was all we had That's were the right. bottles that you'd brought them in. That's right. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm getting I'm getting the two totally mixed up. So Yeah. Start, it, but yeah. it's but it's interesting because I don't recall if we made any selections at our retreat in July. 
Mm, yes, we did. Did we? Mm-hmm. What did we select on retreat? Our 1991 Aberfeldy. Jesus Christ. Yep. That's a good one to bring up because I don't remember first tasting that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But to the balconies at hand. So you're, you're right. We, this was in August. We were in New York City together. This was at the Keepers of the Quake inaugural banquet. And we had a selection of samples to choose from. And what I found most interesting about all of them was, and, and, and I hope when the folks from Balcones hear this, they, they don't get upset. So I'm going to say it in the right way, <laughs> in the correct way. <laughs> These, oh, I, I would, I would, Nobody <laughs> loves a Joshua disclaimer more than me. <laughs> oh boy, well, okay, there goes another relationship. One of the things that, one of my own personal takeaways was that of all the samples that we've tasted, none of them seemed complete, right? This is, this is one of the things that's always the most difficult is finding a single cask that is going to deliver to you something that a master blender can do with a series of casks. And I remember first mentioning that when we were at the Westland Distillery and we were doing and I'm getting a bit tangential here, but it, but it, it informs the story. And we were doing a, a Westland single cask selection with 20 to 25 single cask nation members. And I explained to everybody in the room, with Matt Hoffman in the room, that there are some casks that we said no to, not because it wasn't bad whiskey. It was good whiskey. But the, the, the certain casts that we said no to, it was quite obvious they were component whiskeys that would make a larger release that much better. And so when, t- and, and Matthew Hoffman was like, I'm so glad you said that because that is what we see most often. I'm dealing, when I make a whiskey, I'm dealing with components. The single cask that does everything in, in honor of David Jennings is a rare breed. So... I remember tasting these. Hold on, I know you want to interrupt me. I'm not going to let you. I remember tasting these and and saying, you know, these are all good. They're all doing an interesting thing or two, but it wasn't dynamic there. It was all components. And so that's when we started playing around with marrying one cask with another, marrying another cask with another until we found a combination of two casks where all of a sudden it was doing everything we wanted our balcones to do. The reason I was, I was going to interrupt you is we had that episode of Extra Extra. It's all about whiskey where we talked about not idolizing single casks. Mm. And I think partly we as whiskey consumers have fallen into a trap. It, Our business name is Single Cask Nation. Our brand name is Single Cask Nation. (laughs) Uh It's, I think, all too easy to believe that you walk into a warehouse, you open up any range of casks, and you decide, do I want this cask, that cask, this other cask? What are these casks bringing to the table? Mm. Single casks came about as a subcategory. Sure. Because they were the exception, because they were rare, because to find one cask that checked all the boxes 
was incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And I worry somewhat that we've reached a point now, and you and I talk about this all the time. In the United Kingdom, there's a new independent bottler born every single day, right? Because there are so many casks for sale. Such a response to the shortage, or the seeming shortage starting in 2004, 2005, 2006. The response to that, all the taps got turned on. Now there's a lot of 10-year-old spirit. Now we're seeing 12-year-old sure. spirit, sure. 14-year-old spirit. There's a lot of it around. It's still not easy to find that exceptional no. single cask. Oh my God, no. Yeah. And so it's not to downplay what any single distiller is doing. And when you and I reach out to start a new relationship with a new distillery, we're there in search of single casks. We're looking for that one single cask that checks all the boxes. And I think it's okay if we don't find the single cask that checks all the boxes. Mm. Look at what we're doing with the whistle pig. Vermouth finishing with rum finishing. Mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what the hell's going on there? What the hell are we thinking there? It's exceptional. Tokai finishing, but bringing two together mm-hmm. that are, you know, richer, more flavorful, more expressive than simply the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now here we are with balconies saying, here's what we liked here, here's what we liked over there, and bring them together. We are in the business for our nation members of putting the best whiskey from the distiller we're collaborating with in the bottle. And we're not afraid to go down the path of double cask nation and double cask exploration. Not not at all. And, you know, we've been asked this question multiple. I know I've been asked this question multiple times over the past almost 10 years since we started the business. And and that's, you know, when when a distillery gives you casks to choose from, do they get upset when you say no to something? Exactly. And, right? And, and the fact of the matter is, A, there's a good chance they may not have tasted the casks themselves. And B, everybody's palate is different. And so what I may love, someone else may not love and, and, and vice versa. And then, the, you know, the, by extension, the question would be, geez, w- would a distillery be upset if you marry the two casts together because the you know is that a, sending a message to them that the two casts weren't good enough no that's the, that's not the message the message is we love balcones or insert distillery name here we want to do work with you and we want to get to a place where we're both proud of the spirit and you're proud of the spirit and it's really is as simple as that. There's no one's getting upset saying that didn't work for me. Okay, let's move on. There's, there's more casks, right? Let's move on. Exactly. So, um, exactly. Yeah. So, so when we reached out to Balcones and, and said, you know, this is what we've done. We hope it's okay. You know, we've married these two casks. They were perfectly fine with it. And, and I want, I want to give a little bit of detail on what these casks were. So they had offered to us new charred oak and Hungarian oak and refill oak and 
and all this stuff. And, and what we had to choose from was, was all four-year-old spirit. I think it was all four-year-old spirit. Anyway, and, and it was a multitude of different fill levels on, on those casks. And what I personally was most interested in were the refill casks. I wanted to see something that was a bit more spirit forward with Balcones. And we tasted that. And that was, of the single casks, that was probably my favorite of the bunch. But I also felt like there was just something missing. Like, geez, it could use just a bit more oak going on. And so we took one of the first fill, and not first fill, but, you know, like new charred oak ones, and married that together and did a, and did a full 50-50 on that. And that's when it sang, like, the oak wasn't taking over and the spirit wasn't taking over. The two married together so perfectly. And so to the point where you and I actually created some samples, we let those samples <laughs> sit for a few weeks, and then we returned to them, and and it was still just as good. I, I, I don't recall there being an evolution, but I remember saying, yeah, I still like this. I still think that this is really good. Well, and, and to show off, just like we've done with Westland, to show off the best of American single malt and not sell anybody short. Mm-hmm. And to know that we've established ourselves on the back of Scottish single malt, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's a big ask to come into to America. You know, the, the, the barley is essentially different. The climate is different. The casks are often different. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's how do you still tell a consistent single malt story, but allow those differences to shine through. And so I'm I'm excited for it. Balcones, our second American single malt release. That is one hundred percent correct, right? Yeah. Before that it's it's been Westland. And now it's exactly. Balcones. Yeah, this is Exactly. Super and I was gonna quickly stuff. throw yeah. in Go ahead. we've enjoyed the best of both worlds in working with Westland where we have done single casks with them, but then for the Whiskey Jubilee bottlings, we did some blends with them, mm. some blends of casks. Yep. And and so we've we've had that opportunity to play around when you get to say things like, it just needs a little X, right? Just needs mm-hmm. a touch more Y, mm-hmm. right? And how mm-hmm. do you go about doing that and getting that? And so I'm excited that Balcones was cool with us putting a couple of cast samples together. Uh, I'm excited to see what it's what it's going to do in the bottle and get that out to members. Yeah, yeah. So again, this this should be September time. I think we're targeting somewhere around eighty five dollars a bottle, uh, which is which is a nice uh, nice handsome little price for that. Uh, you had mentioned before, and I want to get this out there really quickly. You had mentioned before uh, the best of both worlds. Yes, and sir. So so really quickly. Gun to your head, are you a Sammy Hagar or David Lee Roth guy? Just as you didn't see the appeal in Blade Runner, mm-hmm. I never saw the appeal in Van Halen. At all? Nah, like, not even ironically, mm-hmm. not even, you know, you're in a karaoke bar. Well, okay, I forget who I'm talking with. Imagine you go into a <laughs> karaoke bar. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and you no, had Van Halen no. songs. Okay. Let's say now for me, it, for me, it was it was Sabbath, it was Zeppelin, it was ACDC, the California 
hair band style. Mm. Nah, it wasn't there for me. You? I'm a, uh, I'm a David Lee Roth guy, like through and through. I, I it thought makes sense. Sammy Hay, it just got, you had, you had Eddie Van Halen focusing too much on keyboards and less on guitar. Sammy Hagar was just this curly haired, roly poly dwarf that I didn't care to put my eyes upon. Uh, and David Lee Roth was just this ultimate showman, uh, an absolute That's maniac. True. And, and That's true. the music is, and I have to tell you this really quickly, whenever Hot for Teacher comes on the radio, I mm-hmm. have to blast that as loud as humanly possible. The drums on that, holy fuck, great drums, really good. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's I did my my best friend in in, uh, in in college in uni in Glasgow, huge huge Van Halen fan, huge, yeah. and I I still liked him well enough. And it's not like I'm a massive Van Halen fan, but it's one of those things that comes on the radio and I hear David Lee Roth and I just want to turn it up because it's just ridiculous 80s, you know, schlock, you know, which is just (laughs) fun to listen to. Anyway, before we get out of here, I promised, we promised our listeners that we would incorporate a listener email into this. Now, you, sir, have the questions at One Nation Under Whiskey on your laptop. Or so you say you do. Or are they on your phone? I have them. I don't have them on my laptop. If you check the transcript, I never said they were on my laptop. We're going to jump in the way back machine, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger did in The Terminator. We're going to do it with our email selection this week. Mm-hmm. We're going to go all the way back to the middle of June, which was approximately six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And we're going to return to an email from Ariel Green, who's mm. a jolly good nation member mm-hmm. and a jolly good listener mm. of, of what we put out with One Nation Under Whiskey. And so this, this is a good long email and, you know, we've got all the time in the world. None of us are going anywhere. Mm. J, J and J, which... <laughs> has become a common salutation in our email account. That it is. First off, I loved this week's podcast. The way Daniel, and that was Daniel Whiteson, you know, astrophysicist. Particle physicist. Particle physicist, just like I said. The way Daniel discusses things is so relaxing, and you can really tell that he loves what he is talking about. Yeah. And I will definitely listen to his podcast at some point. Oh, I love that. I think that the quote-unquote celebrity interviews that are not focused on just whiskey are enjoyable. And I am always interested to listen to them because I know that if they got you to stop talking about whiskey, then what they have to say must be really cool and interesting. Which I think (laughs) is a very interesting way to look at that. Yeah. Now for some comments and finally a question. My father is a huge wine nerd, Hmm. which is where I learned about tasting and what can impart different notes into whatever it is you may be drinking. Okay. My only real experience with palate fatigue came back in 2015 when my brother and I went to three wineries in Israel in one day. By the end of the day, I wasn't getting the same flavour notes as I had been earlier on and was not appreciating the wine as much. 
As I don't taste things for a living, it is not something that I think about often, but it is important to have an understanding that fatigue is in fact a thing. Mm -hmm. I know that chefs and sommeliers live in fear of losing their sense of smell or taste, and there's an excellent episode of Chef's Table on Netflix that talks about the chef of a restaurant in Chicago who got tongue cancer and had to go through crazy treatments in order to recover. It's not a normal thing to wish someone, but I hope that your noses and tongues stay healthy (laughs) so you can keep picking delicious whiskies for the nation to enjoy. Thank you. And I'm going to throw in at this point that I don't want to say I was taking coronavirus lightly, but I do remember in the very beginning when a lot of us talked about it as, ah, it's just like the flu and ah, you get sick for a couple of weeks and then you bounce back. The day I heard that it was affecting people's sense of smell, yes, you better believe I took it a thousand times, 10,000 times more seriously than I'd been taking it. And from that day, I have washed my hands thoroughly when I've been out. I have worn a mask in the store. I have kept six feet from every human being who comes into my vicinity. Oh boy, did that was that a game changer for me with coronavirus? Same. I just wish you would also wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, but that's another story. Uh, continue with the email, Jason. If wiping his hands on his <laughs> trousers was good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. <laughs> uh, so c- continuing. A few years ago, I watched a documentary called Somme about four sommeliers who were studying to take the master sommelier exam. I Hmm. watched the same thing, Ariel, and they talked about the interesting things that they do to keep their noses fresh. Basically, what they do is smell everything that they can lay their hands on and try and associate different smells and flavours to different types of and regions of wine. Mm -hmm. One of the notes that stuck with me is when one of the four gets a note of fresh tennis balls and cut hose. I have only done one blind whiskey tasting, and I correctly identified that one of the whiskies was a Highland based on the flavour profile. But I couldn't begin to try and identify the regions, much less the distilleries of the other ones. I am wondering what you all do to keep your nose and tongue trained to identify different scents and flavours and how you would use those to try and identify a whisky in a blind taste test. So we'll return to that. Uh, There's a, a couple more paragraphs. Thanks for all that you guys do and I am really looking forward to getting my hands on the Kalila release. Peated, sherried whiskies are some of my favourite ones and I'm always looking to try new ones. I was unable to get a Lechig from last year's release, since we don't have Single Cast Nation sales here in Washington, but I am getting two bottles of this one for sure. Nice. I hope it worked out all to the good. <laughs> and then he signs it, Ariel Green, P.S. 
one of my co-workers still has about a quarter of a bottle of Dark Cove left that I try to break into when I go visit him. It's delicious stuff. Uh, I have a bottle of Tregvan that I have been waiting to open for the right occasion and look forward to grabbing a bottle of the black... you got to pronounce all the A's. As well. <laughs> Even if it isn't sherried. Yeah, yeah. yeah Dark Cove and black. We tasted those back in... In the episode and fun fun stuff mm-hmm. so th- thanks a millionaire a wonderful wonderful yeah, email wonderful to hear from a, a valued nation member a valued listener of the podcast so we'll return to i am wondering what you all do to keep your nose and tongue trained to identify different scents and flavors and how would you use those to try and identify a whiskey in a blind taste test which you and i have already said in this podcast we are both terrible at a couple a couple of points here First off, yes, we, we had said neither of us are, are any good at blind tasting something and saying this is from X distillery, this is from Y distillery. That is an incredibly difficult thing to be able to do. Some people do. Our good friend Ben Weldy is excellent at that. Exactly. Right. But the other thing that I would say too, and and this may or may not be controversial and and we may or may not have said it in the past, but I... The single cast nation, one nation under whiskey, lawyers again. <laughs> I would say that in general, the regions, as they're listed, as they're put forth by the SWA, are, are a farce. I think you could take Isla Pete and go up to a Highland distillery and make a peated whiskey up in the highlands just as if you've ever had unpeated colila it tastes like a highland whiskey you'd never notice that that's colila but the only thing that makes an isla whiskey isla is the physical terroir used the actual turf the actual peat from the ground to dry the barley that says this is an isla whiskey and this is why we and many other people often talk about the difference between Highland Pete and Isla Pete. And I, I would have a hard time calling it a farce. A farce is a bit strong. As so? we discussed with Mitch so. in One Nation Under Rum, <laughs> they're, they're a valuable jumping off point. Could you take Pete from X and take it to Distillery Y and make something similar, maybe, maybe you could. But all the regions are doing is saying, generally speaking, producers in this region do this and that and this well, other thing. Okay, and so so I guess... It's not a farce. It may not be a farce, and, I, and that's, that's a good point. There's a reason why distilleries in the Speyside region of Scotland, which used to be called the Glenlivet region of Scotland, would put Glenlivet at the end of their name to give people an idea of the general flavor profile. These are Glenlivet whiskeys. And of course, when the Glenlivet started marketing themselves as a brand, that all, that all changed. But so, so you bring up a good point in that distilleries from the various regions will try to create a specific style but there are outliers, Ardmore in the Highlands, right? That, that's, that's making a style that most Highland distilleries aren't making. But I would say 
that you can you can produce an Isla like whiskey elsewhere if you just use Isla peated barley at a different distillery. You know, there's maybe fifty percent of the distilleries on Isla are are maturing their stocks outside of Glasgow and, and some like Lafroig mature some of their whiskeys on the island and, and a lot of the whiskeys off the island and, and so on. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that environment plays an integral, a huge part um, on, on how that whiskey would, would taste. We got a bit tangential. I, you know, I took one tiny part of, of Ariel's email there, but, it, but I, I really do feel... I like that it was the part that defended why we're terrible at blind tasting. Yes, yes, I, I have to I have to defend why we're terrible. But but I, I have techniques, Jason. Ooh. I have certain techniques that I Ooh. do to keep my nose and palate fresh. Oh. But before I share mine, I thought I'd give you the floor <laughs> <laughs> and let you talk about yours it's and i think ariel alludes to this in the email it's being aware of how much tasting how much selecting you're doing in a day you know if you and i are selecting casks from milk and honey distillery as we have done that's going to be different than selecting casks that are three decades old Mm. as we have done with our Imperial, as we have done with our Bowmore, as we have done with our Altmore. It, it, it's different, and I wouldn't pivot from one into the other. And so I think part of it is being sensible of a day. You and I, anytime we sit down, we sit down with plenty of water to, to drink, to even sometimes sniff. Uh, you know, we, we'll stick our nose in a glass of water. Mm-hmm. We'll stick our nose up against our own skin. Oftentimes the, the crux of our elbow. Um, I'll often sit down with a black coffee. and I'll, Yeah, these are all good palate resetters. Yep. Right. Refresh with that black coffee on the nose, even across the palate, which and we mentioned this way back in the beginning of the, you know, the, the One Nation Under Whiskey series. But that's a Jim Murray technique. And when I first heard of Jim Murray drinking black coffee while tasting whiskeys, I thought, that's a really strong, bitter flavor going across your palate. That must skew your flavors. And instead, it's it's a tremendous resetter. Yeah, it's amazing. And, right? And so, so you know, we, we try to keep the black coffee close. Um, that's, that's the, those are the things that come to mind. You've got... You've got well, more you, different. What, what you're talking about, and I, and I do all the same things that you do. What you're talking about is tools and techniques to to extend the amount of whiskey samples you can nose and taste without getting that fatigue, right? And those are really good tools. However, the other part of Ariel's conversation is what are you doing to keep, you know, the tasting notes going to make those connections? And, and in that case, and we've talked about this before, you know, I smell everything in a grocery store. I very much what, what, 
you know, what the guy from Psalm did. You know, you go around smelling everything to the point where we had a recent release and we used uh, pork rinds as one of the notes. And I know, I think you had said you had you had, had pork rinds in the past before you became oh, yeah. a veg- vegetarian. I never have. Very much so. <laughs> and, and, and so what I did to find out what that was, I remember seeing someone eating pork rinds, and I asked if I could smell their pork rinds, which wasn't code for anything. I just wanted to smell Only their you. pork rinds. And, uh, but this is, this is how I'm able to figure that out. And so it is smelling everything. It's tasting as much as possible, too. It's making combinations of food that you would never consider. In a, we get a lot of unusual tasting notes, and people say, well, why why are you putting smoked salt on watermelon? Have you ever tried smoked salt on watermelon? It, it sounds weird, but it tastes amazing. But it's also interesting. Oftentimes, we'll say to people, pay attention to what you're smelling when cooking or when baking or mm-hmm. when in the store, and then look for that note when you've got a whiskey. Right. Yeah. If you recognize the, the ginger, if you recognize the pepper, if you recognize the, the nutmeg, right? But the thought of doing what the, the sommeliers in training are doing, which is taking an aroma and placing it with a region or placing it with a specific whiskey, like that's a real nice way to fine tune the olfactory mm, system mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and keep that, you know, I'm using it metaphorically, using that muscle working, right? That muscle memory yeah. working. Yep. That's that's a real interesting idea. The one the one thing that I want to add to this, and this was something, Jason, that you and I talked about recently, when it comes to selecting casks, I'm starting to put a bit more importance on to when that whiskey is being tasted. So when you and I normally taste, we're tasting in the morning, right? When, when your palate is yeah, nice and yeah, fresh. fresh. But the fact of the matter is most people are not drinking whiskey in the morning. They're drinking whiskey after their day is done. They've had breakfast, lunch, dinner. They've had their coffees. They've had their teas of the day. They've had, you know, whatever. And their palate is affected by everything that went on in the first 12 hours of the day. And so I found it very important to go back to the samples that were that we want to give either a thumbs up or a thumbs down to and taste them in the evening when everyone else tastes the whiskey. And I got this idea from being in the recording studio. <laughs> when my bands would go into the recording studio, the sound engineer had his amazing monitors that we would listen to, right? That's your that's your early morning taste, right? These amazing monitor where you monitors where you hear every little bit of the sound. And then he says, you know what, let's give this mix a listen on the car stereo speakers. And then he just switches channels and then you hear them in lesser speakers, smaller, not as high quality, totally different sound. Does it still sound good to you? Now let's put them in these cheap boombox speakers. Does it still sound good to you? And I think we have to look at whiskey in the same way. We're tasting these whiskeys. We're reviewing these whiskeys when we have the freshest palates and we're tasting everything. But not everybody is tasting 
what we're tasting because either A, they have different palates than ours, or B, they're tasting in the evening when most people drink whiskey. So it's been important for me to take that approach. Do I like the whiskey in the morning on the best monitors ever? Do I like the whiskeys in the shittiest boombox speakers ever in the evening? And if the answer is yes, then that's a new little box to tick when we're selecting casks. Well, and, and this also speaks to uh, an email that we received from from Natalie Wiesenbaum up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, we'll talk about Natalie and Liz. This is you know the wonderful Natalie, and and she was alluding to when you open a bottle, right? And you and I have talked about this on the podcast. When you first open, and it could be single cast nation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You receive that bottle. It's crossed the ocean. It's sat in a warehouse. It's sat in a UPS delivery truck. Mm-hmm. It's come to your front door in a summer month. And you've opened it because you're excited to finally have that bottle. And you pour it. We know for a fact that first pour out of that bottle is not going to be like the rest of the pours yeah. out of that bottle. And... Mm-hmm. Again, the reason I bring this up is because we've alluded to it in the beginning. We've talked about somehow bottle oxidation. We've talked about Mm -hmm. some kind of molecular level of marriage happening within the bottle. And now we're talking to where in the day you taste, how you've lived (laughs) that day to get to the taste. And now we've got to where are you in your bottle when you're drinking it as well. Yeah. There's so many factors in play here that on one hand, you and I are deciding how to spend company money on cask selections mm-hmm. and company bottlings. And then we've got members of the nation who are saying, well, I'm drinking this in the evening or I'm drinking this the day it was delivered to me. How many of these experiences can we explore when making a cast selection, when making a cask release? I don't know, man. Like it's at some point, at some point it's, you know, how many checks and balances do there need to be? And, and we've talked about this in the past. Sometimes it's just simply a matter of, is that a great whiskey? Yeah, that, that's a great whiskey. Let's not even focus on notes. Am I enjoying this? Do I keep coming back to it? Right? We, we've talked about this at tastings. I think we've mentioned on the podcast before where we're at Westland picking some new casks and we're trying to figure out which cask to go with, not realizing we kept going back to one sample over and over again. Mean, meanwhile, we're hemming and hawing, but naturally we kept coming back to it because we found it engaging. We found it something that we wanted to drink. Well, and really, for the course of of this year, we've been borrowing John Glazer's word. Is this whiskey compelling? Is it compelling? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right? We we, we keep returning to that as well. And so, you know, there's there's no ideal moment to enjoy your whiskey. It's just a thing you do. Mm. There you go. Well, I, I think I think on that, Jason, we covered a lot of ground there. We we covered a lot of ground. So 
before we head out of there, I was just going to say on that, let's get out of here. But I want to remind people how they want, if they want to get in touch with us, how they can get in touch with us. And they can it email us. It's a thing that we do. It's a thing, right? It's uh, what it is, what we do, that we do. Sometimes. Every now and again. So you can email us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You could tweet at us, which no one seems to do much anymore these days. But I guess Twitter is still a thing. Dude, is Twitter still around? I think it's still around. It is. Okay. Uh, you can tweet at us, at One Nation Whiskey. You can Instagram us, direct message, I guess is how the kids do it these days, at One Nation Under Whiskey. And then there's always our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, go in the search bar, One Nation Under Whiskey. And as a reminder, and I don't know why I'm reminding people, we've been saying this for nearly four years, we never spell whiskey with the E. So if you try to use the E in any of those instances, it will do you no good. We try to follow what the majority of the world does and not spell the word the word with the E. So there we go. Is, it, is there any last comments you wanted to to share with the with the listeners before we uh, make like a tree and fucked off? There was another movie that I returned to after <laughs> several decades. Lady Chatterley's Lover was that it? Speaking of Skinamax. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, speaking of Skinamax, wasn't the Highlander TV series on Skinamax and had a little bit of flesh in it? I don't know because A, I thought the movie was pure hot garbage. So B, <laughs> I never watched the series. It was so bad. I would go so far as to say the TV series is hot garbage and the first movie is exceptional. If you allow it a lot of leeway. Like the Scotsman playing a Spaniard and the Frenchman playing a Scotsman. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and Clan McGregor. Connor. No, Connor McLeod. Clan McLeod, is that it? Ian, Ian McLeod. No, that's a whiskey company. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, Joshua and our very, very dear listeners. Cheers to David Jennings. Cheers to mm. Ariel Green. Mm-hmm. Cheers to Natalie Wiesenbaum. I know we covered your email in short shrift. But we weren't going to cover it at all, and it jumped into my my head brains. Thanks, as always, to you, Joshua, for, for all the editing, and to all the listeners for putting up with our One Nation Under Whiskey silliness. <laughs> and thank you, Jason, for eating a dictionary earlier and oh. uh, coming out with words like piebald and um, what was the other one? Rubenesque. Rubenesque, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. I appreciate all of that. Uh, but no. You, you take your flocky, knocky, nihilipilification and get the hell out of here. <laughs> Cheers, Jason. Chin chin. Two chins. <laughs>